The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And today on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, you know when you've decided to throw a dinner party? All your guests have RSVP'd, that last minute run to the store has already been handled, the champagne is chilling on ice, and yet the 75-pound whiny snot-nosed kid you kidnapped to cook won't just get in the goddamn oven? Have you ever had to listen instead, as you sharpen your custom evisceration tools, to a kid try to bargain for his young life by peddling tales of terror, distracting you from the more mundane, important things with stories from a darker side? And does this dark side really, as they say, have cookies? Well, let's find out. Because today we are chewing our way through the 1990 oft-overlooked classic pulp-packed celluloid extravaganza, Tales from the Dark Side the movie. So sit back, grab that old stashed away bag of Chips Ahoy, and turn up your child roasting ovens as we ingest this zany parade of 20th century terrors. Brought to you by Casual Cannibalism, Baby Buscemi, Christian Slater's Return to the Dark Side, The Birth of Mummified Evil, The Woes of Banging Gargoyles, and all the major players in the 80s horror storytelling landscape. Seriously, there are a lot of names to drop in this thing. And of course, the safe word today is daylight. Anything to add, Benji? Well, since it's October and Halloween season, I want to say something like, you know, boo. But since I know I'm talking to you, it's more like boo. Uh, that was weak. So you say boo to that joke? Boo. <laughs> aha, aha. I got you saying it now. Why do I talk to you? You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! Boy! I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Hey, London. Yo, Benji, what Fuck up? Fuck you, my name is Ben, and this is, yeah, the Sim of Cruelty Podcast. London, you know, I've realized something about what sets us apart, what makes us the cultists and this cinema of cruelty. London, when we pick a movie, we commit, as our little intro music will say, to sparkle motion. Something I've said in the past is that I will, when we're doing a movie, I go on to the podcast's space, uh, spaces and I, I find other podcasts that have talked about a movie. And over and over again, I noticed that there are these horror movie podcasts that I, I won't name names because I didn't write them down, I forget, but a lot of them would talk about this movie as if they just didn't have the time to talk about it. Or they just didn't want to talk about it, but they said, oh, we're talking about all the George Romero films, so we have to talk about this one now. Or we're talking about scary anthology movies, so we got to talk about this one now. And I just think to myself, why are you even talking about this movie then? If you clearly do not want to talk about it. This happened over and over again. And why would you not want to talk about this movie? Because this movie is so much fun. So much fun. Putting it down there, folks. That's how we do here. When we pick a movie, we commit. All right. Are you done pretending that you're better than 
everything around you? Because we know that's not true. I never started. <laughs> Wait. I... <laughs> sure. Okay. So, yes. What are we doing today that apparently not other people want to talk about? So hopefully somebody will want to listen to. Since people do not read titles of podcasts that they click on, we will tell you. We're talking about Tales from the Dark Side from 1990. Right? Yes. We are watching... Tales from the Dark Side from 1990, exactly. Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Exactly, because Tales from the Dark Side, previous to the movie, was in fact a television series that began in 1983. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of this movie, because that is the most interesting thing about this movie is how much history it has and how many people it has involved with it for a film that does have a small cult following. But by and large, not a lot of people see this movie, talk about this movie, know of this movie. I did not for the longest time. Well, I, I won't say I hadn't known of this movie. It was more just that I had never seen it. It sounded vaguely familiar. I was sort of aware that it had a cult following, but really, no, maybe not even that. Maybe I just really wasn't that aware of this movie at all, because how I came across this movie is our good friend, Pharmacist Chris, yeah. who is a consultant on this podcast very often when pharmaceuticals, pharmaceuticals come up and into play. <laughs> Which they really do a lot in the films yeah. that we watch for whatever reason. Yeah, we, we watch a lot of drug-based films, you know? <laughs> so he had gone over to this wonderful used DVD and bookstore that is in town, and he was in the horror October mood, and so he just picked up a bunch of random films with October horror-ish themes, and one of them was the DVD of Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. And he's like, I've never heard of this, but it was on the shelf. And do you want to watch it? And I'm looking at it, and the cover art's a little bit kitschy. I'm like, this is probably going to be really bad. But then I'm reading the back of the box, and it's dropping names. Like, George Romero, and John Harrison, and Michael McDowell, and Steve Buscemi, Christian Slater. Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. David so, Johansson. We could yeah, go on. Donald Rubenstein. We will go on. This upstart author named Stephen King. I mean, he's yes. done some good stuff. <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle. And we're like, the fuck? <laughs> so, yeah, there's just all of these things just stuffed onto the back of the box cover. I'm like, all right, let's give this a try. And then we put it in. And it was so much fun that I'd immediately text Benji. And I'm like, we're doing this one next. <laughs> I, I don't care. You don't have a say. We're watching it. And so that is the tale of what led to really Tales from the Dark Side for us. But what is Tales from the Dark Side? Well, it is an anthology. It's an anthology movie. What is an anthology on... you at? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> based on an anthology TV series. And so we are going to get a little parade of three short vignettes, all wrapped within a wraparound fourth story. And they are going to be fun, campy little tales of comedic horror, very heavily inspired by the pulp comics, EC comics specifically, from the 1940s and the 1950s. And so where this all came from, I'm going to tell you a tale. Once again, a lot of my information is going to be front-loaded. And then the oh. stories that these... I'll go take a nap. ...anthology 
selections are based on. Benji once again did the reading, so he will bring you the Arthur Conan Doyle and the, the Stephen King of it all. The reading and the watching, as it were. Yes. I had to watch other things for related to this, but you know, we'll, we'll right, get into fair it. Fair enough. We'll so we did it. our research, and part of that is once upon a time, in the year 1983, a man named George Romero, he created a TV show. It's an anthology horror sci-fi fantasy TV show based on the EC comics of things like Tales from the Crypt and The Vault and whatnot. Because mm-hmm. little thing about Tales from the Crypt, most people know it from the anthology horror show that yeah, also came out in the 80s, like 89. And uh, the Crypt Keeper always talks in the puns and what have you, you know, that. Yeah, but Tales from the Crypt actually was a comic series for EC Comics that ran from 1950 to 1955. The fuck and you that, say? Yes, and that is where we get the TV show. But by the time Tales from the Dark Side came out, Tales from the Crypt, the TV show, was not out yet. So Tales from the Dark Side actually came first. Holy shit. And both of them being based on Tales from the Crypt comics from the 1950s. What came even before either of those, though, was a little movie called Creep Show. Yeah. And that came in 1982. Creep Show. Show is super fun as well. It's going to have the same vibes from Tales of the Dark Side. It draws a little bit more heavily from the comics panel feeling of its source material, but it still feels very similar. And why it feels very similar is because pretty much everybody involved with Creep Show just went on to do Tales from the Dark Side. So <laughs> I mean, this Creep movie Show. is often called Creep Show 3 by a lot of fans because, yeah, so much of the cast and crew from the Creep Show movies made this thing. Yeah, because Creep Show, directed by George Romero, written by Stephen King, I think. Donald Rubenstein to the music for Creep Show. So basically the entire little crew is just going to get lifted and first start working on Tales from the Dark Side, the television series, which also, of course, is going to have Romero involved. It has King involved. It has Rubenstein involved. It also has John Harrison, who wrote and directed and composed a lot of the music for the TV show, who's then going to go on to direct this 1990 movie. So we just, yeah, lift everybody. And so just a bullet point list here of some of the people involved. For the 1990 movie, John Harrison is going to direct. He is known as a long-term collaborator with George Romero. He wrote, directed, and composed music from Tales from the Dark Side TV show. He also did a lot of the music for Romero's stuff and a lot of his Dawn of the Dead, Days of the Dead, all the zombie Romero movies. Harrison's going to kind of do the music for those. He also wrote and directed the miniseries of Dune. (laughs) Oh, oh. Around the time that this movie came out. So that's fun. <laughs> oh, God. I forgot. I remember that miniseries. That was such a weird thing. Oh. Donald Rubenstein, he just does a whole bunch of music. He's going to come back to do the music for this. <laughs> Michael McDowell, who is best known as the writer of the screenplay for Tim Burton's Beetlejuice, is. Nice. Uh, going to be one of the writers on this movie so he wrote the first and third segment so he wrote the one that is going to be adapted from an arthur conan doyle story and then the one that is adapted from a japanese folklore tale myth whatever Quaden. and george romero he's here he wrote the second segment that's going to be based off of a stephen king story he also produced this movie mm-hmm. so basically what we have really and it's 
going to be hard to talk about the separations of the lighting department and the editing. Well, the editing was done by Harry Miller, but hmm. for the most part, we've got a group of people who more or less defined a certain subgenre of horror in the 20th century that have all worked together for a very long time in different overlapping ways. And they wear many hats, as mm -hmm. it were, in the media that they engage with. So we have on some segments, right, Romero stepping in to direct and John Harrison stepping in to do the music. And then the next segment, Harrison is going to direct and Rubenstein's going to do the music <laughs> and Romero's going to produce it. And then in other sections, Romero's writing it. So it's play, all play of these it's this group of people. <laughs> yeah. And Stephen King's hanging out on set to just kind of like advise. Um, Stephen King wrote the screenplay for Creepshow, but he just contributed some of his stories to them be adapted for the screenplay for this movie. So it's like, it's a whole thing. It's just a bunch of dudes on set that are really good friends and are having a great time making this movie. You can tell they're having a lot of fun. You can also tell that they were working with an extremely low budget. They have also admitted to this. I did watch this film with the commentary with John Harrison and George Romero. Oh, lovely. And a lot of what they kept saying was, and we had no money. <laughs> <laughs> no money whatsoever. Oh, so likely a likely excuse. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, they were watching this very affectionately. They loved all the decisions still 10 years later oh, when they were doing great. the commentary that happened in this film. But So it was more like a... It wasn't a, oh, man, yeah, that that looked a little rough, but we had no money. It was more like, yeah, we got that shot, and we had no money. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, yeah, they, they're really happy about it. So it was just kind of fun, and it is fun to see them work around the low budget. There's a lot of really cool decisions that were made on this, so we will cover those as we go. And then, of course, also, as we mentioned, these are some of the first film appearances for Steve Buscemi Baby and Steve Buscemi. Julian Moore. And uh, Christian Slater is there, too. This is 1990 by this point. So Christian Slater, he's, he's been around. Yeah. But he pops up here because, fun side note, one of Christian Slater's actual first roles was in Tales from the Dark Side, but the TV show. Oh, very so nice. So we'll get there when we get to his segment. So, oh, yeah, cool. that's a little front-loading backstory of all of the people that are just involved in this. And you're like, mm -hmm. whoa. So, yes, what is the best thing about this? I have pretty good feeling our best thing is going to be the same because to me the best thing about this movie is its practical effects the practical effects are pretty great the best thing about this for me is i think just the tone of okay. the movie i was not expecting it i put in this disc thinking okay i'm about to watch something not great and then it just continuously delighted me. Mm -hmm. So it was a pleasant surprise, and it's just zany tone. Just commits to the kitsch and the B-ratedness of it, and I love that. What's your worst thing? Worst thing? I mean, it's not really a horrible thing that goes on here, but the editing feels a little off to me in some parts of the movie, especially the first story. And I don't know, I, when I was watching, I just was thinking to myself, okay, they're holding on this one shot. Did they not have another shot? And hearing that the budget was really low, I think that most likely came down to they just could not get all the shots they wanted to or what have you. Because the editing really in Lot 49 especially at times feels very abrupt and random or things cut off way quicker than they should or shots go on for too long. Uh, it's minor, though. It doesn't ruin the experience uh, for me or anything like that. But I just thought, ah, 
that's an odd choice that they made. Oh, see, interesting, because I actually watched an interview with Harry Miller talking about the editing specifically oh, okay. for Lot 249, and everything in that was very, very purposeful, especially all of the screen wipes. There's so many All the screen wipes. wipes I didn't have a problem with. I mean, and I think that's the most screen wipes I've seen in a movie that we've done since Battlefield Earth, but um, <laughs> that's an early episode. That I didn't mind so much. It was kind of just the rhythm of some scenes felt very strange to me that I, I'm actually surprised to hear that that was all very deliberate, but hey, go yes, figure. Yes, and why it was deliberate is because another thing that's cool about the segments is that they all have very different feels tonally because they're all coming from slightly different periods of inspiration. And so the segment that we're referring to here, the first one, it is based on a story from 1890 that very much draws off of the Egyptology mania that was happening at the time. And so a lot of their lighting, tone, and editing choices are made to mimic 1940s adventure action television series and films that came out at that time. So a lot of the pacing and the jarringness and the screen wipes, those are all the weird little kitschy B-rated leftovers from that very specific time period. And okay. so they wanted to just create that feeling like we were watching something from that time. It takes away a little bit because, well, I don't know what it was like at the time because I did watch this on a restored DVD. So the lighting and colors are going to be a little bit sharper for me. So mm -hmm. I imagine that it did probably have even more of a 1940s feel before it was digitally remastered. <laughs> so probably is that disconnect there between watching it restored and then also watching it with old school kitschy transitions. But... My worst thing is probably the third segment. I'm just not as invested in the third segment as I am oh. the first two in the wraparound story. But Interesting. We'll get there. Yeah. That's actually my favorite segment. Huh. Curious. All yeah. right. Yeah. Well, a little yeah. bit of something for everybody, yeah. I guess. You know what? You know, we're, we're, we have had differing opinions at times throughout all this. Yes. And I'm so glad when we do. <laughs> I don't want to be anything like you. All right. Shall we now begin? Sure, why not? Let's yeah. uh, dive into some tales from this dark side. From the dark side. And this movie does not, like, wait to give you the title or the theme, because as soon as it starts up, boom, music. That intense part is very quick, and then it just kind of becomes a little bit more la 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 la. It's like it softens really quickly. Yeah, well, it starts out with a couple of notes, which I really love. This was the this was the moment I knew I was going to love this movie because it starts out and we just have a couple of notes, and then all of a sudden. Bam! Yeah. <laughs> we get the music, and then we get the title card right away, and. If anybody was wondering where the font for Stranger Things came from, oh yeah, here I'm, it is right here. Well, I mean, I'm it gonna is do a, a side by font. side on Instagram for this one because yeah, it's spot on the same font and the same look of a title. Yeah, the same and the red against the black, and so it's like, oh, hi there, Stranger Things. <laughs> but 
And Stranger Things, of course, is a television series that homages the 1980s very, very heavily, so that makes sense. Now, it's specifically the Tales from the Dark Side movie font more than the Tales from the Dark Side TV font, because mm-hmm. those are slightly different. But it would make sense that Stranger Things would homage Tales from the Dark Side, because in Stranger Things, we have the upside down, is their inverted space is all the idea of Stranger Things, is that there is an upside-down world where dark and weird things happen. And that was pretty much the premise of Tales from the Dark Side as well. In fact, the original intro from Tales from the Dark Side is so delightful. I think you have that clip. Let's play that clip. Man lives in the sunlit world of what he believes to be reality. There is, unseen by most, an underworld. A place that is just as real, but not as brightly lit. A dark side. (laughs) So great. (laughs) Yes. So basically, man has an inverted space, the upside down or the dark side. So, hey, here we go. So Stranger Things fans out there. Yeah, we basically have Tales from the Dark Side, the upside down. And we are going to enter that dark side individually in each episode or three versions of the dark, well, four versions of the dark side right here, right now, because the credits come up and we're in a blissful little town that does look like it's a small New England town somewhere, but it is actually New York City. It's a, what? So, yeah. What it's part a section of New York, of New York City, City is this? Yeah, it's a little bit on the outskirts, but most of this is going to be filmed in Yonkers, although there's a couple of sets oh, okay. in Terrytown. But fun sort of thing is that they ended up not filming on location very often. A lot of the things that they use are just set builds inside of an abandoned... Yonkers High School. (laughs) So they got some sort of school in Yonkers that wasn't being used, and then they just built a bunch of sets, including the house that we're about to walk into. So we're watching a blonde woman walk through the streets, and that one is just in a neighborhood. And she walks inside a home that is a gorgeous set build because it just looks like they got somebody to let them use their house. And I'm not sure why they didn't. I'm not sure why they thought it would save money to build a set because often you can find people that let you film in their houses. But this is a set build. And the blonde woman is revealed to be motherfucking Debbie Harry (laughs) just on her way home from the grocery store. And it's like, hi, blondie. I didn't see you there. We never find out this woman's name. So I'm just assuming that this really is Debbie Harry. And that, right? Yeah, that's. I, I was she... too. I was like, this is what Debbie Harry does on her off time. Yeah. Totally makes sense to me. <laughs> For people who do not know who Debbie Harry is, she is the lead singer of the band Blondie, which would have been still very much at their popular height in. 1990 because they were really mm-hmm. big in the 80s yeah. and she was really big in the 80s she's in a couple of other movies this is not her only movie credit but mm-hmm. super delightful one for her she's so great in this she commits as she's just walking around the kitchen first of all there's a fridge behind her and this fridge is it's a scene stealer for me even, i didn't like, even notice Debbie this Harry fridge and you're you are on this like a clear transparent refrigerator My God. Well, because it's 1990, so 
yeah, they have this refrigerator on their set that the free, it's a double door, so the vertical double doors. The freezer side is solid stainless steel, but the right side has just like a full window pane, and you can see all her food inside of it. <laughs> and that blew my mind because I've seen certain models of fridges like that in the early 2000s. I did not realize that they were already a thing in the late 80s. It makes a certain sort of sense. There's a certain yuppie quality to the idea of look at my arranged food in my fridge, but I just I think that's a terrible idea for a fridge in general because <laughs> oh, that just looks so messy. And unless you're really going to neurotically arrange your beverage cartons and condiments. I don't know. Fridges are solid for a reason. So, yeah. <laughs> I know. The, the fridge is the land of secrets. It should not be transparent, you know? Yeah, but I, I had seen some transparent fridges before, but I did not know that they had started that early. So I, my, I was blown away. Those who eat from a glass fridge do not throw eggs. Sure. Yeah, yeah whatever. But, like, it's... <laughs> Come on, that was a good one. Come on. I, I refuse to ever acknowledge you. <sighs> so the yeah, it just blew my mind though. I was really obsessed with this fridge and just all of its implications. But turns out her eating habits are not that transparent. Because <laughs> nope, no. Behind an actual opaque locked door that is off to the side of her kitchen and looks like a medieval dungeon, she opens up this solid wood door. And behind that are bars. She's and she speaks inside to the bars and like, says, What's going on? What have you been doing all day? Have you been eating cookies? Did have you... you been reading? Yeah. And from the depths of this medieval dungeon, off of her perfectly sunlit lit kitchen, we hear the shrill cry of a small, small boy. When I was a little girl, this was my favorite book. Which one was your favorite story? What difference does it make? been so long i almost can't remember them help let me out yes this little kid is matthew lawrence yeah he is who had actually been acting for six years by this point dude got Whoa. into acting when he was four years old craziness and i think most people like what would most people remember him from he was on boy meets world he was on boy meets world uh, he was also on the disney channel series brotherly love with his other two acting brothers oh, andy right. lawrence and joey lawrence yeah he appeared on blossom a few times as a younger version of joey his actual Whoa. yeah <laughs> yeah i didn't know that that's funny i also remember him from so will friedel and matthew lawrence eric and Oh, God, what was his name on Boy Meets World? I don't know. So the two characters that were the roommates on Boy Meets World that were the older brothers of Sean and Corey, respectively, that became roommates in the college years, Matthew Lawrence played one of them. And then the two of them went and did another Disney original channel movie called H.E. Double Hockey Sticks. Like, that's what? not the word hell. Like, the title of the movie is H.E. Double Hockey Sticks. And it is a trip because it's never stated necessarily that they are not their characters from Boy Meets World. But Will Friedel is playing a demon who is the minion of Rita Perlman in hell and is told that he needs to go collect more souls. And so he goes to the surface and he 
recruits the soul of Matthew Lawrence, who's a professional hockey player that really wants to win the Stanley Cup, and he's willing to trade his soul for it. And he plays on the Devils team or something like that, because, you know, hashtag metaphors. But by the end, he ends up getting transferred to the Angels, and there's a whole thing, because it's a subtle, not subtle film. But it is... (laughs) a bonkers film. I just remember there's a really confusing corn dog eating scene at a carnival and Rita Perlman carries around this head in like a bowling ball bag or something. See, I don't know. The stuff I remember Matt Lawrence from the most is a show that no one remembers nowadays called the Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. All S's on the cyber with an S. Yeah, that's right. right. What was that about? That was kind of a show that came out in the midst of like Power Rangers hype where we were importing a lot of Japanese shows, re-filming all the human scenes, and then just playing all the monster fights. And it was this show, like in America, and I think the plot of their Japanese show was pretty similar too, where this high school student gets uh, zapped one day and goes into a computer and has to fight computer viruses that are made by some evil schoolmate of his, and they actually never know that, you know, they're the ones kind of fighting each other in weird ways. Uh, there's this weird, like, computer virus villain named Kilocon that's voiced by Tim Curry, and Tim Curry, like, the Malcolm, the bad student, does drawings of monsters, and Kilocon zaps the pictures and makes them computer viruses and oh my god this sounds awesome yeah yeah and uh, matt lawrence and his friends uh zap like throughout the show like they have to go fight the computer viruses because they're making problems in the real world yeah you know that's, that's what it science. is you know you and you have like tim curry he's not on screen he's just voicing some weird monster thing that's in the computer like yeah yeah weird fucking show no one really remembers this show for whatever reason i never see retrospectives talking about this thing but matt lawrence he was the kid who got was always being zapped into the computer to fight the evil viruses whoa yeah (laughs) that is a lot okay amazing so that's the thing that that is real yep And what is also real right now is this kid who's just hanging out in a cage off the side of this woman's kitchen as she casually talks about how she really needs him to put the book titled Tales from the Dark Side, by the way, away because she really needs to get him into the oven because she has a dinner party. She's talking on the phone to a friend of hers about this, asking her to bring champagne glasses for eight people, and that her friend only has six champagne glasses, so it's okay, her and Mitch will drink out of jelly jars or whatever. So Blondie apparently is married to some dude named Mitch, and she throws these dinner parties all the time for a group of at least eight people. So she's not a solo cannibal in this endeavor. And I think that's really important to point out. I don't know why, but I just feel like it is. This is not your traditional Hansel and Gretel, like lone witch in the forest. There's a community of middle-class cannibals in this small American town that are ready to eat this child with champagne. Also, I don't really know if champagne is the drink I would pair with 10-year-old boy. just doesn't seem like it pairs well. I mean, I don't know for a fact that it wouldn't pair well with a 10-year-old boy, but if we're just kind of putting, like, substituting steak for 10-year-old boy, yeah, champagne's not really the drink that you have 
with yeah, it's not really your, a meat based. No, no, drink. You, you know, you, you would think like red wine with meat, but not champagne. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. This witch is she's weird, man. She's got she's issues. weird. This is her, that's her only fault, though. This one thing that she doesn't pair drinks very well. Anything else about this witch is pretty awesome. Oh, it's perfection. Yeah. So yes, they have this conversation, and the way that Debbie Harry just deadpans it is spectacular. So we're not. She is dead. We're just gonna play it. This whole movie, yeah. What are you doing? Just preheating to 350. Help! Help! There's a crazy woman in there! She's gonna cook me! Scream me! Help! I never Help! put this on the Let's see, how many times is 12 going to 75? Mm, six times, three left over. Why? Well, at 12 minutes a pound, that means you have to be in the oven by no later than 1.30. So, the math is a little off here. Okay. Talk to us about the math. Okay, yeah, yeah, I had to figure this out. So, I'm assuming by 75, she's talking about, like, his weight, the, the weight yes. of the kid. Because, yeah, 10-year-old kid, 75 pounds stopping wet, very likely. And she says, 12 minutes per pound cooking at 350 degrees. 12 times 75 is 900. So, that's 900 minutes, which divide by 60, that gives you... 15. So she needs to have him in the oven for 15 hours. So I think this dinner party's a bust, is what I'm saying here. If, if, unless she's like having this dinner party at 2 a.m. Like tomorrow next, night, maybe? I don't know. Did she? I, yeah, I don't know if she said tomorrow night or what the deal is, but this is just a bad time to start cooking a 75 pound boy. All right. We all know you start that, you put that in the oven at the start of the day. Yeah, this is a dawn activity. No, I don't know anything about cooking meats. I'll eat meat. I just I don't like cooking stuff. So the cooking math is not my strong suit. She really well, doesn't, folks. If I visit, we starve if I don't make food. It's 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 how it goes. Yeah, <laughs> I shouldn't have to do things for myself. She also just uh, mentions, oh yeah, I I need an hour to eviscerate as well. What's eviscerating? What's evisceration? Yes. Yes, kids. What is evisceration? She just explains in very casual detail. Oh, that's I'm just going to gut you. And I'm, then I take out everything that's not me. And then I stitch you back up with my, with my tools here. It, yeah. She has all these crazy gutting tools that she just has laying around. Clearly, I mean, this is a hobby that she has these laying around like one would have mm -hmm. power tools in the garage. It's a thing that she Or like a, a frying lot. pan in the kitchen. I mean, yeah. this is one of her cooking utensils. Bitch is prepared <laughs> to eat a small child. You gotta respect a bitch who gets the stuff done. All right, good Although on Although you would think if she was this routinely familiar with cooking small children, she'd also know how long one needs to be cooked. So, you know, there are some flaws. She doesn't seem like a very- Some holes in the system here. I think, like, she doesn't take notes terribly well, or it's just, maybe she's not, you know, She's more cooking is an art less than a science, so, you know. Yeah, yeah she, she feels her way through it. At any rate, the kid, is seeing that his time is, is, is short here, realizes he needs to delay things. He needs to throw her off or distract her. And so he says, wait a minute, uh, I could read you a story from your favorite book. Is it a love story? Yeah, it is. Well, actually, no, it's not. Uh, it's about these guys in college. <laughs> Yeah, these and, really rich guys, they're at college. And you're like, all right, this uh, sounds like something a small child would be really invested in. Okay, right? then take me there. And we finally get into our first story, Lot 249. 
the transition here is going to be an audio one, which is very cool. So it's the one time they do that. We yeah. cut to the inner story that this kid is telling, but we know that we are transitioning into it because his voice is going to continue to overlap with the dialogue as the sub story starts to filter in. He'll be telling it and then we'll get a little bit of dialogue from the characters on screen. He'll be telling it and then eventually his voice will fade out and the story just takes over. It's a very cool decision and just a very competent one. Also, I really just love this wraparound story, how it is just as weird as anything else. But I call it the usually, Hansel No Gretel story. Yeah, usually the wraparound story of a horror anthology is maybe a little bit more... There's this tendency to try to normalize it, like, oh, here's somebody who's just reading this tale to us. Mm -hmm. But instead, no, this is just as weird. This is just a fourth <laughs> strange comedy horror story and it's just naturalized we're not going to address why this woman is about to cook this child that's just that's just how it is uh -huh. right and i it's my favorite of the four segments actually love this whole little section Very but nice. yes yeah, yeah then we get into him telling this tale of lot 249 so benji what is lot 249 Originally, Lot 249, this segment of the movie, as the opening credits tell us, is inspired by a story. Later se segments will be based on stories. I found that distinction kind of interesting. But Lot 249 was originally a short story by one Arthur Conan Doyle, who's you know famous for writing about this detective. You may have heard of him. And it was originally published in 1892 in Harper's Magazine. And this was, he was actually, uh, Doyle was in the midst of the Sherlock Stories. He had just written 12 stories straight for the Strand magazine in the early 1890s. And I think just he wanted to break from talking about Sherlock. He's like, I really need to do something else for a little bit. So this is the first fiction that he had published in a year that was not a Sherlock Holmes story, believe it or not. And the the short story, the main story beats are pretty similar to what we get in this segment of the movie. The big differences are just time and setting. Because this, in the film, this is an American college and it's modern day. And in the short story, it takes place in Oxford, in Oxford University. And despite the fact that it was written in 1892, Doyle sets it in 1884. Because even in the 1890s, 80s nostalgia was a thing. Fuck yeah, it was. The 80s are the best in any century. That's the takeaway. Yeah, very strange. And it involves a mummy. Because Egyptomania was very big in Doyle's time. Hey, London, Egyptology, what's that all yes, about? Yes, Benji. Yes, well, <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. You actually asked this time. Are we so, dancing because I totally am leading you, you into that. You asked for it. <laughs> no. Once upon a time, this crazy cool cat named Napoleon, he had a little campaign. He had lots of campaigns, but one of them was his Egyptian campaign from 1798 to 1801. And this combined with the recent translation of a little thing called the Rosetta Stone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've heard of it, maybe. <laughs> led many Europeans in general, but particularly Britain, to become fascinated with Egyptian art and architecture and science and religion and stories, basically like everything Egypt. So this Egyptomania is the term that comes to be associated with it, was a fascination with all things Egypt. And then 
Ramses II was found in the 1880s, and what Egyptomania had been already brewing just exploded in the 1880s even more strongly. So this century of obsession with Egyptology is going to be marked in literature with the first mummy story, which was written by Jane Webb. It's called The Mummy! Exclamation point, written in 1827. Hmm. And that was a novel that was actually heavily influenced by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which had come out in 1818. Damn so this right. idea of the reanimated dead, but like, hey, instead of a science, let's have a mummy and this Egypt stuff be our walking dead thing. Although Doyle's story coming out in the 1890s, so we have this sort of century of mummy fiction, and yet it is Doyle's where he is the first one to paint the mummy as dangerous, mm. as a threat. Everything else is just, you know, like they're walking around, they're having fun, they're getting into some shenanigans, but <laughs> suddenly Doyle at the end of the century is like, no, these things could be horrific. So in the way that we talked about on Twilight, that Anne Rice was the one to come along, pop culturally known as the one to come along and say, we're going to make vampires this traditionally monstrous thing, just like super hot. We're just going to use them as a platform to explore sexuality more than anything else. Mm. And yeah. Doyle is going to be that dude for, we're going to make mummies this threatening, dangerous presence that could possibly kill you. And so it's kind of fun to just see when a particular trope or creature or concept gets picked up and just irrevocably altered for a long period of time that comes after it because the mummy is going to be a popular horror creature after Doyle gets done with it. But it is also actually, I guess, so not but, but it is also the first work of fiction to feature a modern man reviving a mummy with an ancient Egyptian text oh, as opposed to okay. electricity. Yeah, that was so the that's norm another after. sort of thing. Yeah, because the Mary Shelley whole Frankenstein thing, then influencing Jane Webb's The Mummy, is really going to play a role in just associating it with electricity for a while, as well as just the whole current wars that were going on throughout the. 1800s. Electricity was a big thing in the 1800s. And we'll talk about that some other time because I love the obsession and the weird ways that electricity was used in horror and folklore and science fiction in the 1800s. But today is not that day. All we need to know is this mummy does not get revived by electricity. We're going back to the OG roots. And this leads into something that is a genre, a subgenre of horror fiction that Emily Adler refers to as the imperial gothic. And I just love this. Well, I love gothic literature in general, and I find the imperial gothic sort of an interesting, complicated type of subgenre because you have this imperialism happening in Britain at a specific point in time during the colonialist imperialist era. And as they are invading and colonizing and taking over, there's also this backlash subversion that happens where you find that Europe in general, but then once again, Britain in particular, was growing increasingly fearful and worried about being invaded by quote-unquote foreign cultures. That It's like, well, you're the one who went out to <laughs> colonize and bring those home in the first place. But then there was this 
sort of looming fear of, well, what if this takes over, right? It's really embedded in imperialism and racism and mm -hmm. a whole bunch of isms. But mm. we do get this, yeah, subgenre of fiction that really does either capitalize on that or explore it or, you know, there's there's good and bad imperial gothic fiction out there that does good and bad things. But Arthur Conan Doyle's The Mummy is going to be marked as one of the prime shining examples of this imperial gothic type of turn in literature where you have that invading foreign culture that then gets brought in, of course, by the colonizing power and then poses a threat to that colonizing power. And suddenly the colonizing power becomes the victim for having colonized in the first place. <laughs> and it's a, it's a whole complex mess, but yes. So that is the context. So we have these fears that are going on and that whole little landscape made this mummy story very, very popular. It was very well received. H.P. Lovecraft was obsessed with this story. He wrote about it extensively huh. in his little essays about being one of the best examples of modern horror fiction because it was fairly modern at the time I, yeah, <laughs> that he was writing yeah. and yes yeah, so that's the deal and we are going to try to modernize it here just a tiny bit we don't set it in 1890 in our tales from the dark side movie but it does have a distinctly kind of 1930s 40s feel mm -hmm. because we're hearkening back to that pulpy pulpy stuff of the 1940s yeah, it checks it makes sense so getting into this the action of this short segment, we have a, you know, we have to have a moment of some greetings and salutations because, hey, it's Christian Slater. Yes, popping onto the screen in an amazingly douche bunny tennis sweater. <laughs> it's so good. This is as so far good. from his wardrobe in Heather's as I think you could possibly get. Oh my god, and he's pulling it off. He looks like such a yuppie. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, Heather is like, an, I'm just always thinking about like trench coats and leather jackets. Here he is in super preppy mode, playing Andy and his buddy, you know, we're talking with his buddy Lee. In the short story, Andy is the main character. It's uh, The short story is from the first person point of view. Andy is our narrator, except in the short story, his name was Abercrombie Smith, which yeah. I could not read or hear or listen to the audiobook of it without thinking about that clothing line. And apparently neither could the people who made this movie because... His name was wisely changed to just Andy. He looks like an Abercrombie. He looks like an Abercrombie Kensington or something. He's just, <laughs> he's amazingly douchey. Yeah. I love it. How he got involved in this initially is that, as mentioned at the top, uh, Christian Slater, one of his first roles, not the very first one, but one of them, was in the TV show for Tales from the Dark Side back in 1984. And so... I guess George Romero thought of him when they were casting this and said, hey, that kid that's now doing a lot of stuff throughout the 80s that was in my show, we should see if he'll come back and do this segment. And Christian Slater was totally down. The episode that he was in back in the day was A Case of the Stubborns. <laughs> he comes in playing Jody Tolliver, a young boy whose grandfather has in the just TV died. Show. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And the uh, grandfather, at first, him and his mother are really sad about it until his grandfather comes down the stairs still to have breakfast in the morning. And it's basically just a curmudgeonly zombie who won't accept the fact that he's dead. <laughs> and then they have to convince him, like, Grandpa, you, you can't just come down and have breakfast anymore. Like, you, you got to move on. And so it's a, it's a whole slightly comedic thing. People like this episode. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's his role is trying to convince his grandfather he's, in fact, dead his stubborn stubborn grandfather that he's dead 
reverse sixth sixth sense scenario, yeah. if you will. Like, no, you're dead, man. Just come on, move you're on. You're dead. Let's <laughs> yeah, let's let's get in the ground. Come on, buddy. Andy, played by Christian Slater, and his buddy Lee, they're chatting a little bit. Turns out these guys are the kind of cheats. Uh, his buddy Lee is a bit of a cheater for scholarships, or whatever. There's some rich college assholes. That's just how they do. And they know this other guy who's not a rich college asshole. In fact, he's he doesn't have much money, so he has to work some side jobs. And this fellow, Edward Bellingham, played by baby Steve Buscemi. Yeah, who looks a lot like regular Steve Buscemi. Actually. A little bit there, you know. His his like his face is smoother now, which it's it's Steve Buscemi is like one of those guys, kind of like a Willem Dafoe, where their faces just make more sense with lines and detail. Steve Buscemi. Very young is it's it's a strange sight, but he's always a strange sight, and that's what makes him wonderful. So what do you do? But Bellingham, he has to you know buy and sell things. He's a buying and selling kind of guy, and he has bought something quite interesting. There's this giant wooden box in his room. They go up to see it, and he just says, "Let me show you guys what's in here." Brings out this crowbar, looks like he's about to attack Lee with it, and opens up this big crate. It's a sarcophagus, as you do. You know, no wonder those guys had a hard time bringing that box in because sarcophagi, sarcophagi, cuss, sarcophagi, those are, they're, they're, they're heavy. They're heavy little things there. And what's in there? A goddamn mummy. Yeah. So this, this motherfucker is like days trading human remains to pay for college. Which, that's, I mean, that's a career. I, I worked a lot of weird jobs when I was in college. Never came close to that that racket. The 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 buying and reselling of human remains, like yeah. Mummies. I knew a lot of people in grad school that would go and sell their own plasma for money. But oh, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah, not so much the foreign contacts with Egyptian smugglers that could then get you a full blown mummy. But once again. This is set in like the 1930s, 40s, somewhere in there. And it kind of needs to be because this would not necessarily be as applicable in the 1980s, 1990s. Because by that point, you can't just order a mummy. Wait, is this the short, the, the short, the film, the film is meant to be set in the 1930s? In the 19, like 40s-ish, yeah. Huh, I never really got that. Well, I mean, in a weird way, it's kind of a blend because they do have telephones. Yeah. So it's a little bit of like a mix. It's so it's it's set outside of time and space. <laughs> I mean, they are wearing modern stuff. They do have telephones. There are some 1980s art in Julian Moore's apartment. But then I think it's because I am so strangely hyper familiar with the tonal cinema choices of 1940s pulp media that because they were homaging the color palette, the editing choices, and the camera work mm -hmm. from the 1940s, I was like, this is very distinctly 1940s for me. Like, But through an 80s lens, right? So think the first three Indiana Jones movies, how those mm -hmm. are technically set in this mm -hmm. 30s, 40s time period in a very similar way, where there's tons of anachronisms. Oh, sure. But at the same time, it's supposed to hearken to a certain pulp feeling. And I did get very heavily there homages to that time period. And also just the casual sale and trade of these human remains because by the 1980s and 90s that's really i think for some reason this came up maybe on the blue velvet episode the why not the transition in the legal sale of body parts 
Oh, <laughs> that's right. Because the ear and they're like, we got to get. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we got to get a hear or something like. But so that was actually around the time period that there were a lot of changes. But for a little while, especially during the time of the 1890s when Conan Doyle was writing, there was this idea that mummies were objects, not people. Mm. And therefore, there was a lot of open trade and sell of mummified remains. Actually, there was a craze throughout the 1800s of using mummies as a type of medicine. So I remember I had like, I wrote an academic article about this once, but it was a long time ago. And it was fascinating in that they would ground down the mummified remains into a powder paste. And it was kind of linked to the idea of the longevity of the mummy, this preservative quality of it and so there was this folk medicine belief that if you ingested mummified remains that that would help extend your vitality in your life and so it's a very popular medical treatment throughout europe during mostly yeah during this kind of like earlier earlier time period not necessarily in the 20th century but you know before before we started saying to ourselves you know maybe don't ingest a corpse just saying. Yeah, I mean, people do. <laughs> Debbie Harry's about to. Like, she's going to kill the kid first. So, you yeah, know, but that's cannibalism, fresh. it's a thing. You know? But it wasn't necessarily seen as cannibalism because it was an object. Oh. And then later, like, ethics kind of came in and were like, hey, these are actually human remains. Maybe we should treat them like human remains Just and not saying, grind yeah. them up for life vitality pseudoscience or whatever but yeah this was still going to be like a trade Mm -hmm. for a little while throughout the 40s that you could be a little bit more open with artifacts and whatnot now it is illegal but there is a there's still a very active black market i found in my research for the trade of mummies and sarcophagi mostly sarcophagi this is whatever now you have me doing it are uh, <laughs> the yes. more high demand than the actual mummified bodies but well that's fair they they still are trying to crack down there's no it. mummies left because the guys who buy and sell them just start cutting them up much like uh Edward Bellingham is about to do with this goddamn mummy because he opens the thing up and he's like, all right, give me some scissors and just starts cutting at the bandages on the thing. And, uh, God, it just drives me crazy when I see people do this in movies. I'm like, no, no, don't fuck it up, dude. It's like a precious What the hell? Preserve it. Well, because he doesn't actually care about the artifact. He just wants to use this mummy for vengeance, but we'll get there. Yes. So Screen wipe. Screen wipe, indeed. A lot of screen wipes, and just this first section of the movie, I noticed. I kept like thinking, "Wow, just we we keep doing this. We keep doing this wipe." Yeah, and that was a Harry Miller decision. The editor, he's like, you know, what was really popular in those pulpy action things that were homaging screen wipes. Yep. You know, what we should use screen wipes. So if, they do. They yeah. use a lot of them. If that's what you're going for, mission accomplished. <laughs> They also have some really cool, super low budget choices that are happening here. A lot of inadvertent chiaroscuro because they didn't have a whole lot of lights to work with. And so they have these big, high powered flashlights that they're using for the most part. And there's this really cool moment where Steve Buscemi gets knocked out, falls on the ground, and it's just a completely black screen close up of his face on the ground and the flashlight is swinging back and forth back and forth and it's very cool it's very effective and so 
there is something that is low lit about this, but then there's a lot of warm light coming in. And mm -hmm. so it's a very curious form of low budget lighting. You can tell that there's skill there, even though they don't have a lot of lights to work with. So mm -hmm. we're just getting patches. And in these patches, we have something strange starts happening because we do learn that these yuppie motherfuckers, with the exception of Christian Slater, he doesn't seem to be in on this, have cheated their way into a spring break summer abroad in Europe by writing an essay, and their essay won out over Steve Buscemi's because they framed him for stealing a Zuni fetish from the museum and accused him, and so he got omitted from the competition. Even and though he, he says he hates Zuni fetish. Zuni art. He does. He at one point specifically states like, "I hate Zuni artifacts or what I have hate you. Zuni aesthetics." Oh yeah, like, yeah. Okay, bitch. Like what up? Gotta, so he's, yeah. yeah, he's a bitch too. There is the question of what in the world is a Zuni fetish. Sure. What there is yeah. the question of that. Yeah. So Zuni fetishes. You don't have to answer it, but you're going to. I'm so. going to. Yeah. Okay. The Zuni. The Zuni people. It's an and indigenous people who live in the Zuni River Valley, mostly in New Mexico. So it's a group of people living in New Mexico of indigenous origin. They are these little hand-carved animals. There's specific animals that are more popular than others, generally also incorporate a lot of turquoise into it because that was a very sacred stone. And the question that I've had before when it comes to fetishes in anthropology is that that term tends to throw a lot of people off because they associate it with sexual fetishes. So the history of the term fetish actually starts out in anthropology as a word ascribed to objects that seem to have religious, spiritual, or supernatural significance to their beholders. So it's an object that has a certain amount of power that is greater than the object itself, right? There's a certain either psychological or spiritual ascribing to this object. Mm. And that is actually where sexual fetishes come in later when you have people like Kraft Ebbing who take from anthropology this term and say, okay, so in the way that anthropologists have noted that there are people who ascribe certain powers to objects that are somehow ineffably beyond the object, I I'm noticing people who do that sexually as well. Like, hmm. other than this just okay. being a shoe, right? This <laughs> yeah. shoe suddenly takes on something that is larger than the object itself. It's a more sexualized one than a religious, spiritual, or supernatural one. But it's that same kind of basic premise that this concept or object has power over its beholder in a certain way. And so sexual fetishism actually borrowed its term initially from the fetish of anthropology, which is ascribed more to these kind of tokens of... So in that way, like the cross, for example, is a fetish in Christianity. It is a object that is ascribed a stronger... Hmm association than like its object itself right we've got two pieces of wood that are overlapping that by and of itself is not a powerful object until it is ascribed that kind of fetishistic power and then we've got third wave fetishism which is more consumer fetishism and that is more in marxist and capitalist critique where you have consumers that ascribe a certain power over commodified goods like the Louis Vuitton bags or like brand names and things that it's just a 
It's just a logo, and yet consumer fetishism ascribes a greater power to that logo, you know, and meaning and significance. So those are the three types of fetishism. you got anthropological, sexual, and commodification. Commercialism. Nice. Ah, they're all yeah. sexual to me. It's good It's times. all very important. I, I, yeah, I do, I do <laughs> love the, the history of the term fetish. And they're it all is, great. It's strange to hear it in this movie at first if you don't understand that history because you just think, what? A Zuni fetish? What? Uh, yeah, huh? what is that? What? That's so, yes. uh, I always yeah. I mean, in modern day, fetish is like you think of that more as a as a mindset or attitude, not a, a physical thing that you would you know have and hold. Well, I mean, you would hold definitely some whatever. But yeah, <laughs> although relevant to also this time period, I guess like where we came to know about Zuni fetishes in a kind of academic level is that there is a dude Frank Hamilton Cushing who published a piece in what was at the time called the Second Annual Report of the Bureau of Ethnology. And that was in 1881. So that is also right in this heart time period of the Egyptomania craze of the 1880s. We get this other side over in America. They had a growing interest in indigenous art and preserving that for museums. And so this report of the Bureau of Ethnology was supposed to be a catalog for the Smithsonian and then ended up actually being one of the first folklore anthropology journals. And it also, he's important to anthropology because he jump-started the trend of participant observation. That's not going to matter to most people, but anthropologists out there, you feel me, you know what I mean. So he is, he's the godfather of participant <laughs> observation within anthropology. But I think what's happening here in this, like, I despise Zuni aesthetics or whatever, is not necessarily completely a slight on the Zuni people and their objects as much as it's a slight on the 1880s culture wars of America being very obsessed with indigenous cultural appropriation at the time, whereas Britain was very obsessed with Egyptian cultural appropriation at the time. So he's on the British side of things, All right. this 1880s divide. Yeah, good deal. Well, this whole Zuni fetish thing was actually, you know, he was framed by... Uh, Lee's girlfriend, young Julianne Moore, who we meet. She's doing aerobics, which is why I figured this was taking place in modern day. But, you know, antiquated you know, aerobics, it's timeless. And I'm now convinced because of this movie that Julianne Moore is a vampire because she looks exactly the same in 1990 as she does now. Yeah, there's certain people who just are perpetually in their, like, 30s, 40s. Yeah, Julianne Moore is one of them. I mean, she was 30 years old when she made this movie, but I think she just decided, yeah, this is good. I'll just be 30 forever. And I don't know, some people, if you're rich and you have access to good care, uh, yeah, that's an option. Go figure. <laughs> Maybe she was eating the Egyptian mummified oh, medicines. There, that's that's how it's done it there. It works after all. Yeah, yeah. And Andy and Lee, uh, Christian Slater and Steve Buscemi, they're unwrapping the mummy um, because they, they just want to do that and fuck it up. And Edward starts explaining, like, yeah, I see. He doesn't have any brains in there because they take out the brains when they die. They shove a hook up there and just goes on and on about ancient Egyptian embalming techniques. Yeah, he does. He knows what's up. And it is true. That is what they did. So the That's one seven... of them. That's one of the yeah. things they did. So the steps of Egyptian mummification is that you first must embalm the body. 
and then you remove the brain. And you actually do that with a special little hook tool that goes up through the nose. You scramble the brains about to make them all mushy and pliable, and then you just pull them out through the nose. That is an actual thing that can be done. And why you want to do that is because the brain actually is the first to rot in the body or decompose. So a lot of the mummification process is really just removing all the wetness from the body so that it is preserved like a dry good piece of jerky for thousands of years. That's why mummies prevail is because Tasty. you take all the moisture out that would do anything bad to them. So yeah, yes, scramble it all about, you remove the brains, and then you also remove the internal organs for the same reason. Mm -hmm. Dry the body out. So they're not going to mention natron in this film, but that's actually a very important step. It's not just the oils and the myrrh and all of the nice little smelling stuff. It's the, the natron, natron, whatever, however you mm. say it, which is a naturally occurring mixture of sodium carbonate. It's, a, it's kind of like a soda ash baking soda kind of vibe that has a whole combination of stuff, usually appears naturally in the riverbeds of really arid, dry areas, like Egypt and the Nile and all their mm. waterways. It's a very dry substance that then sucks all the moisture out of the body. So you pack the body inside and out with this stuff and the organs, and you just let it sit there for however much time. The Egyptians claimed 40 days. The Smithsonian has since tried to replicate this process, and it took them several more months than the two that it took Egypt, which I find very curious. Hmm. Nobody can seem to be able to replicate the Egyptian mummified process. There are theories as to why this is, but... Is there a matter of just being in the same, like, environment, you know, weather-wise, Egypt yeah. being more... I mean, I subscribe equator. to the theory that that has a lot to do with it, is the just arid, dry, warm environment. I'm sure yeah. this is the Smithsonian is probably trying to replicate that environment in a very controlled, tightly sealed room, but I don't know. And then there's also whether or not they're using the exact form of the sodium carbonate uh, decahydrate or whatever that was mm. in that bed specifically like i don't know there's there's some variables there's a lot of variables but in general like the egyptians they had this process down in the way that nobody else quite does in terms of the speed which they could churn this out hmm. and then afterwards you wrap the body in the early in the first kingdom or the early kingdom the old kingdom there are different ways to say it um, they yeah. used to put the organs in little Coptic jars next to the body because didn't want to like put those back in. Later on, once those organs were also super dry, they would put them back in the body sometimes. So yeah. there's different periods in which those mm. would go back in. The heart, however, always remained in the body because it was the center of the soul for oh, Egyptians. So right. that got to stay in. That didn't come out. So somewhere in that body is probably a heart. Well, go figure. And then they wrapped it, you know? Yeah. Made it, or actually, I guess, put a bunch of oils on and, like, smelling good stuff, but the oils were more to keep the skin elastic from completely hmm. drying and shriveling over the bones. So it was a whole thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, they're they're excited about this process. They're describing it. It's also going to be important because the mummy is going to repeat this cycle. Yeah. So they're laying figure. it out for us. Well, yes, as Steve Buscemi is digging around he doesn't yeah like you said doesn't find any organs maybe he would have found a heart but he just finds like some junk some garlic some onions and then most importantly a scroll a scroll oh. from the third kingdom my goodness what will that be all about 
Maybe we'll find out within a few minutes because it's a short section of the movie. You know, gotta gotta move on there. The uh, Julianne Moore, she goes to visit him because she's got to plant another Zuni fetish in his apartment because that's just the plot that we're going with, the, the weird things they're doing to fuck up this guy's college career. I don't know, it's just... It's just yeah, because so he's going to kill him, and we need to feel for this guy, right? Yeah. And how we feel for him is he was framed was for stealing framed. Zuni fetishes so that he couldn't go to Europe for the summer. Like, I don't feel bad for any of these assholes, but whatever. <laughs> Fine. It, uh, it's a strange thing. Andy, who lives in the same building as... Edward Bellingham, he hears Ed, Ed saying some spooky things late at night. He's like, what the hell? Is he reading from the scroll? I don't know. It's kind of strange. Suddenly they're attacked by something in the dark. We don't know what it is. It's the mummy. It's it's very <laughs> obviously yeah. the mummy. We set that up pretty solidly. Yeah, no other suspects. It's very obviously the mummy. I mean, what else is it going to be? It attacks Lee at one point the really preppy guy it's this it's the first kill Lee I swear to god like gets a tennis racket to defend himself at one point I'm like oh for fuck's sake really really dude a tennis racket that is such a fun yuppie move oh, like my tennis racket shell protect me although do you remember how heavy tennis rackets used to be? Now they're all super light and fiber, glass, whatever. And so yeah, those things used to be heavy. I've got my old school tennis racket. It's you know, I'm going to take care of business because I'm a badass and all that. He doesn't know. He gets a hook right up the nose. Yeah, because we had just heard that all laid out. That This is step one of the mummification ritual was to scramble those brains and pull them out. So the mummy learned it by watching you. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Yeah. Parents who embalm. Have children who embalm. <laughs> what was that compilation? Was that last part you? <laughs> <laughs> I may have spiced up an old classic. Uh, slipped it in there. Yep, yeah. Yep. No, he learned it from watching you or us <laughs> or whatever. You know, like the cycle of abuse is a cycle. And the mummy is just, he's acting out what he knows. So is preppy, guy is, preppy guy is dead, basically. And they have a, a quick little funeral for him where Juliet Moore's character, in a very chill manner, explains to Christian Slater's character, um, yeah, actually, I lied to the police. I saw who killed Lee. It was the mummy. Yeah. Yeah, and this chick does not give a fuck. No, she's like, really pat. I don't think she was really that into super Lee. Super chill. I think she was into Lee for the money. I can't really be for sure, but yeah, he don't get, she, she don't give a fuck about Lee. Yeah, she's she's not broken up about it. She's like, yeah, I saw a mummy kill him. Mm. And she's also super chill about that, too. She's not freaking out that she just saw a mummy come to life. She's just like, yeah, I knew I would sound crazy, but it's cool. But at the same time, Steve Buscemi, he's found guilty of having that goddamn Zuni fetish. They're like, goddamn, son, you stole two of these things. You have got, you're, you're done. You gotta go. Mm -hmm. Kick him out of school. Like, oh, fuck. And so now he's like, oh, I know who did this. Julianne Moore framed me, so I gotta send it after, send the mummy after her. And before she's attacked, Julianne Moore has the strangest goddamn line in the movie of any movie that I still cannot wrap <laughs> my head around what she says. She's in her apartment or in her place, and she sees some flowers off the side and says this. 
I don't care how cheap the psychology is. I still hate these stupid chrysanthemums. I don't care how cheap the psychology is. I hate these stupid chrysanthemums. I remember back in the 90s, Lewis Black had this whole weird, like the comedian Lewis Black had the stand-up bit about how he once heard a woman offhandedly out of context say, if it hadn't been for my horse, I wouldn't have spent that year in college. And he like goes on and on like to rant like his brain hiccups. He's like, what the hell does that mean? That's how I feel when I hear that line. I don't care how cheap the psychology is. I still hate these stupid chrysanthemums. I don't know what any of that, how does that all connect? That's such a strange thing. And I, I don't want to, I, I hate dwelling on this one line, but what does that mean? Am I missing something? I feel like I get it though, in a strange way. Okay, what, what is it? What is it? Like she's coming home from the funeral and somebody has given her all of these chrysanthemums. And I don't, it kind of feels a little bit like, Either I don't care that this is a cheaper flower, so people send it like I hate them, or I don't I don't care that it's the social norm to send flowers. I hate these chrysanthemums. Like I feel like it was somehow some sort of word slip or something. I don't know because certainly that wasn't what was scripted on the page, right? I don't know. I even tried to look up this sentence and I got nothing. So it's not an idiom. It's not that I can find. It's just I don't know. It's a weird sentence. I'm glad that but- it confused the both of us at least. Like it's not just me this is a really strange thing to say well i was also just wondering did it hit you a little bit closer because of the mums of it all oh oh don't you dare don't you <laughs> dare go that that is you don't touch that okay you leave so, that be benji god damn it london back in the day i swear to god he, he went through like a split second of what was it like for a summer you got up really early to water a bunch of chrysanthemums or mums at like the mum store more of a farm, but it, you know what? It's not neither here nor there. We'll just let that be like a, a mystery, a mystery part of Benji's past is that there for one summer he got up at like the crack of dawn to go off to some sort of mysterious mum farm and water the mums. Uh, and none of us know why. We don't all do jobs that we're proud of, London. We don't okay? speak of it. I don't know. It's just a random, random part of your history. Yeah. That it's one of the few things I remember about you. Well, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> While she's being, she is now attacked by the mummy, and she throws the chrysanthemums. <gasps> Maybe that's why there's chrysanthemums, mums, and mummies. Oh. <laughs> coincidence she, maybe she throws the mums at the mummy <laughs> oh god i bet that's why it is too oh oh god um just, michael mcdowell you genius you smith of words my yes, god <laughs> such a wordsmith i don't know if chrysanthemums are one of the funeral flowers and i don't know what the native population of chrysanthemums is in egypt are they a dry flower? You would know, having watered the mums. Would you move beyond <laughs> it? Move past it, London. Do they survive in arid environments? No, never. Uh, heavens. Good Lord. But she throws the mums at the mummy, and that isn't the thing that can defeat the mummy, so she tries to get the hell out of there. Mummy grabs her and uh, starts, cuts her open and shoves flowers into her, shoves the chrysanthemums into her, you know, because... Stuffing thing, stuffing the the flowers into someone. 
Because he learned it from watching you. Who taught you how to do this? Y- you know, yeah, that, that, exactly. <laughs> and, and so, uh, uh, yeah, cycle of violence. Although he's skipping some steps, but I guess oh. we don't really have that many victims, targets, Not so something. much. Yeah, Steve Buscemi, like, he only wants, like... You gotta dry like... out that body first before you start shoving it with mums. Yeah, they're very... Yeah. It's too bad, too bad. Well, Andy is trying to get a hold of Julianne Moore, Christian Slater. He's trying to get a hold of Julianne Moore, who in the movie is his sister. And he runs over. There's a screen wipe in the middle of him running, which that's like one of the editing choices I thought was really strange. We see him leave his apartment, arrive, and like there's a screen wipe in between. It's kind of, I don't know. It was the editing choice that I thought was strange. But again, if you're going for a 30s, 40s pulp, you know, serial feel, eh, fair enough. That all works. And uh, she's dead. You know, he he finds her. She's wrapped up. She's really bloody, and and she's dead. So that's a yeah, that's a problem. That's the thing. And then uh, at back at Steve Buscemi's apartment, the lights go out. He tries to fix it. He gets jumped by Christian Slater, and he's tied up to a chair. Yeah, because Slater knows what's up. He's like, I bet it's that bitch Buscemi yeah. that has killed my best friend and my sister with his goddamn mummy. So. Buscemi wakes up tied to the chair in front of a fireplace and Christian Slater, he's in full on JT mode from Heathers in this scene, which totally is. I kind of love. That's my master's stasis. What are you doing? Well, I'm going to start a little fire under your chair and roast your nuts. Why? Why? <laughs> why? Because you killed my sister <laughs> and my best friend. That's why. <laughs> I love that. Just why? Why? <laughs> Well, because murder. Because murder, you asshole. Steve tries to bring the mummy to life. The mummy starts moving, but he's no match for Christian Slater and a turkey carver. <laughs> An electric turkey carver. Like, yeah, it doesn't le- need to be plugged in <laughs> in case the electricity goes back out. <laughs> so another like non 1940s thing. So yeah, I mean it's like 1940s vibes, but clearly 1980s technology. Yep. And. He is having a grand old time. Like the tone that Christian Slater is finding in this acting role is very curious to me because it's somehow he's making those acting choices and they're great and it should <laughs> almost come off as bad acting, but instead it just comes off as some very particular tone that I can't quite situate myself within, but it's a gleeful zaniness, yeah. but taken super seriously, kind of like the rest of this movie. And this mummy is coming after him from behind and Christian Slater just keeps turning around and just carving pieces <laughs> of it off with his little turkey carver and laughing maniacally and sh- tossing bits in the fire. And you're like, whoa, you have a dark side, sir, which we saw coming because we've seen Heathers. But for anybody else within the diegesis of this film, this is, this is coming out of nowhere. Maybe, <laughs> Well, maybe not because he's sort of a sociopathic yuppie so maybe the american psycho vibes are strong with this one and to be expected but it's a fun twist in a way because you're expecting a very drawn out like oh no now it's gonna be him versus the mummy like fight off and like nope this mummy just goes down real quick with this small little electric turkey carver and it's great so he splits open the he, mummy's head. He, all yeah. of these little bugs come out. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, all over Steve were the Buscemi. bugs Nasty. what was controlling this mummy? Uh, it was or are the they bugs just using all along. the suits? Yeah, I don't God. know. But he, he cuts up the mummy, burns the mummy, and then grabs a scroll from 
Steve Buscemi's desk, and he's like, I gotta, like, is this it? This is what you use to bring the thing to life? Yeah, I'm burning this too. No, it's the only one in existence now. He burns it because fuck the mummy. Also, because he just clearly likes to set shit on fire. He just likes to burn things. That. Again, full-on JT mode. Screen wipe again. And Bellingham, Steve Buscemi, he leaves college. And you think, well, I guess that's it then. Uh, he's he's gone. He's never going to tell anyone else about this. But then he's kind of having a little bit of a laugh in the taxi cab. And the, the cabbie is curious about this. <laughs> hey, man, what's so fucking funny? Oh, <laughs> I was just thinking of this guy I know. Couldn't distinguish a third dynasty sacred scroll from a piece of post-Alexandrine pictogram porn. <laughs> <laughs> what a douche. Oh, you know, those assholes. <laughs> Although, third dynasty is kind of curious, because he previously had used the word kingdom mm -hmm. instead of... It was third kingdom hieroglyphics instead of third dynasty. Oh, and hmm. so the kingdom is actually a more appropriate terminology here. So jokes on you, Steve Buscemi, or whatever his name is in this that is acting like a pretentious asshole because I'm going to... I'm going to act like a pretentious asshole instead, and I'm going to school him on the three kingdoms. <laughs> so archaeologists tend to divide Egypt's history into three big blocks of time, and these blocks of time are actually called kingdoms, not dynasties. And they are the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom, or sometimes the First, Second, and Third. And the cool... There's a lot of different distinguishing things, factors between these Old Kingdoms, but the one that's the most cool is how they buried their dead. So the first, or the old kingdom, first kingdom, that's really where you get your pyramids. They built up the pyramids and put people in them, but then you had to have all these people that guarded the pyramids. Like, there were people whose job it was to just live around, in this, like, city around the pyramid, mm -hmm. guarding it. They would bring their families, but that's an expense. It's an upkeep. <laughs> it's kind of a pain in the ass. So they're mm -hmm. like, you know what, fuck this pyramid thing. And then you get the second phase of the kingdoms, and that's where they started hiding tombs all over the place, because they're like, all right, well, if we mm. bury our important mummies and all their cool stuff in hidden tombs, then we don't need guards, because robbers won't be able to find them as easily. Right, yeah. And they just did it all over the place. Mm. And there are a lot that still have not been found by archaeologists. That's why we can still have... The oh. illegal ancient mummy trade and the stolen <laughs> artifact goods because you just have these hidden tombs all over Egypt and a lot of Egypt is desert. And so you don't necessarily have a lot of people just out there hanging out guarding it. So mm. it's a little bit of an open free-for-all if you can find it. <laughs> and then the third or new kingdom, that's where you also have submerged hidden tombs. But... For the important people and the pharaohs, they were all in one place, more or less, which is known as the Valley of the Kings. And that's just a cool concept, that there's just a Valley of the Kings where there are all these hidden tombs of the important Third Kingdom, New Kingdom people. And so that's apparently where the scroll has come from, is the Valley of the Kings time period, which is also the golden era height of Egyptian culture and rule on a more international global perspective. Oh. It's really where they came into their own, allegedly. Hmm. So there you go. Nice. Yeah. Well, because Christian Slater did not burn the correct scroll, guess what happens? After a screen wipe, 
where you see him back at college. He's just chilling out in his room, but gets attacked by, oh no, it's zombie Julianne Moore. Yeah, and zombie other guy. And zombie other guy. <laughs> it was, yes, that, that guy who is... The one guy from the segment that nobody remembers. Yeah. <laughs> Forgotten, but now resurrected as a zombie because the zombie, he did his little cycle of of abuse zombie work and he turned them into zombies not very good zombies mm. it was very rudimentary work he didn't dry them out so they're a little bit more zombies than mummies because they haven't been actually mummified but whatever i guess yeah. the scroll it's loose in its qualifications as to what it'll resurrect it's a very powerful scroll mm-hmm. in that nature and apparently now steve buscemi can just perpetually use his zombie mummies to kill more people and create like a zombie mummy army. I mean, this isn't explicitly stated. It's just the implication That's that we are would... left with. It's the implication. It's, you know, because of the implication <laughs> of zombies, <laughs> we should maybe fear Steve Buscemi from here yeah, on out because uh, yeah. <laughs> there's really not many things that are more scary than I, I don't know. I guess it's like this weird type of imperial ideology of the the white dude that thinks he can take whatever he wants and then build himself an army and kill if he doesn't get what he wants. That's like kind of the true horror in this uh, segment for me, but I think we're also supposed to be like, ah, zombies. <laughs> horror works on many levels. Uh, it really does. Yeah. And that is where our first segment comes to a close, the tale of Lot 249. And we're back in the Hansel, no Gretel wraparound story where Debbie Harry, she's still getting things ready. She's getting that oven ready. She's like, oh, you got to go in there pretty soon. The kid says, no, 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 hold on, hold on. I'll, I'll read you this other story and just starts another story. And we go, we dive right into it. I don't think there's an, a voiceover audio transition with any of the other ones. It was just the first one. But I think that really you you get the idea after that yeah. first transition. Like, yeah, the kid's reading the story. Okay, moving. Let's let's get into this. And so we get into the cat from hell. And this is <laughs> based on a short story, sort of, by Stephen King. And when I say sort of, I don't mean that it's sort of based on a short story. I mean that the short story is sort of by Stephen King. This is interesting. When I... Looked into this uh, this whole thing. So the okay, cat from, take us there. Yeah, this cat, the cat from hell, is a short story by Stephen King from 1977. Now, what Stephen King did was in March of 77, he published 500 words in Cavalier magazine, and said, "Okay, let's see who can write the best version of the rest of this." So basically, he published a writing prompt, and then in June of 1977. The rest of the story was published, credited to Stephen King and a guy named Mark Raines, who I looked up. He's written like one other short story in his entire life. So the guy wasn't a professional writer or anything, but apparently he wrote the best version of the rest of the story. And Stephen King most likely punched it up and added his own style because I've read the whole thing. And it's, you know, stylistically, it's the same throughout it. Stephen King very vivid visual descriptions, you know, that kind of horror. <laughs> and I, yeah, so the story is sort of by Stephen King. It's just another guy gave him the rest of it <laughs> after 500 words. Though, sadly, Mark Raines is not credited in the movie. It just says, based on a story by Stephen King, even though Stephen Ooh. King kindly only wrote the beginning of this thing. Curious. Yeah, I know. Really, uh, really strange. 
So we start off by having a uh, Halston played by David Johansson, a guy who I just have not seen in movies for a very long time, even though I felt like he was in everything I watched back in the nineties. He <laughs> arrives at a, at a big house to meet a rich old guy. And this old guy, he's hired him because Holton, he's a professional killer. And now this yeah. guy, he's got a job for him. Who do you want to hit? Your victim is right behind you. <laughs> that makes me laugh every single time as he's in this dark piece. mansion. This old man is in a wheelchair. He's like, I have a job for you. Who is it right behind you? Meow. <laughs> like, and there you... is a adorable little black cat. Yeah, when he turns, that's the what, what I love is that when the old guy says that, like, your target's right behind you, he turns around, like, uh, Halston, the assassin, turns around, gets at his, like, switchblade, and, like, he's ready to go, and we just have this, like, very wide shot of the door, and this tiny little cat is, like, in the doorway looking just so small, and just, like... We don't hear anything for a second until the cat just goes, meow. <laughs> yeah. And I have a giant cat that is 27 pounds. He's super fat. And so when I see cats of a normal size, I'm like, wait, that's a cat? That's what a cat looks like? So, yeah, it's an adorable tiny little cat in the commentary. Both Harrison and Romero were like, oh, it was such a pain in the ass to work with that cat because it's a cat. So it is a real cat that's just running around on set. They did have a cat puppet for a couple of the more action-based scenes. Oh, yes, they did. <laughs> for the most part, yeah, it's we just get this cat that's going to lurk and run around and drink some milk, and it adds to the comedy because it's just a cat. Yeah. But this old dude, he's convinced that this cat is from the depths of hell come to lurk around the mansion and stare him down to his very soul as it somehow surreptitiously plays a role in massacring all of his family, friends, and loved ones. Yeah. Now, I when I was reading the short story, I didn't count out 500 words, but just kind of estimating, I'm pretty sure that the prompt that Stephen King had published was assassin arrives at house, old guy says, your target is right behind you. He turns around and there's a cat. And like that's all that Stephen King had published. And everything else is from Mark Raines and punched up a little bit by Stephen King. So I, th I think if I was going to guess that was like what was originally published and what was built on from that. So interesting. That makes sense. Like as a prompt. Yeah, it's a great, I mean, I would love that. Like if I were like taking a creative writing course, like got that as a prompt. I'm like, Oh wow. Yeah. There's a lot you could do with that. That's fascinating. An old, old guy in a big mansion wants a professional killer to kill a cat. Huh? Why? And, well, we're going to learn why. So the old man starts telling, telling Holston, the assassin, that he is, uh, he's lived in this house with some old friends of his for a very long time. And one of the thing I really love about this section of the movie is that whenever he got, starts talking about like what this cat was doing, we get flashbacks. And the transitions into the flashbacks are some of the coolest transitions I've They're ever phenomenal. seen. They're phenomenal. Yeah, because yeah. it's not a fade. It's an in-camera effect where the old guy is really close to the camera and saying, it was years ago when we first saw this cat. And then behind, he goes dark. The lights in him go dark. And behind him, these blue lights spring up onto our flashback scene, like the scene from the past. And it's all in camera, which is 
one, that's really tricky to do. You have to have your shit set up really well to make that happen. But it's it's so weird and spooky when it happens. And it works really well. And I absolutely love that. Like, in-camera transitions like that are really rare. Yeah, because what they're not rare in is in theater. And so what's happening here is that we have in the segment a ton of scrim use. Yeah, scrims. So, scrims. Scrims are awesome. A really great word in general, <laughs> and also because I think of Agnes Scrim when I say it from uh, Phantasm. But yeah, so a scrim is a gauze, meshy, drapery fabric stuff. And in theater, you put that little screen up, and when you front light it, it appears as a solid piece of fabric, and then when you backlight it, suddenly it becomes semi-transparent, and you can either, well, depending on what type of scrim you use, it can either become very transparent mm -hmm. or semi-transparent, so you can get silhouette effects. But in uh, theater, it's a very cool effect, and it allows you to play around with having multiple people on stage without seeing them all at once. It's very popular for stage productions where there's like the angel that descends or whatever <laughs> and suddenly the backlighting comes on it's like that's behind us and above and the other cool thing that they do that are also not just an occlusion reveal thing they also create a very interesting spatial sense of distance so it provides a lot of depth to a space that might not otherwise be there because of the way that it diffuses light. Mm -hmm. And it also tends to hide a lot of flaws in the scenery, especially if you're using set painted backgrounds. And there's a lot of reasons to use scrims. And yeah, you're right. We don't see those as often in movies, which we should because it's yeah. super cool. It looks and so cool. In contrast to the first segment where we have a lot of warm colors from the 1940s, we're going to get some very cold blue monochromatic coloring in this segment because they wanted it to feel very visually different and distinct. It's a different kind of story. It has a little bit more of a gothic kind of almost Edgar Allan Poe type of vibe. The music is all background electronic in this one, whereas mm. in the first one, it was, once again, hearkening to 40s musical selections. Sure, so the yeah. music also sets. And the third segment's going to do something completely different than the, the first two, even. So, yeah, that's the, that's the cool thing that distinguishes this one. It's like all of the scrims. The scrims are great. And the camera will push in a lot, too, because unlike theater where you are generally have a static audience that can only see mm -hmm. the the full wide set when things are revealed the camera is going to play around with the scrims where there's this one push into the flashback where the old man is sitting in front of us and we get a close up on his face and then it keeps pushing into his face until he becomes almost a silhouette and then it pushes past his head and then we get the backlight of the script. Yeah. So it's like we're pushing past him into the past. It's so and cool. It's so great. And then there's another transition where he's in his blue monochromatic past. And this one is less of a scrim based thing, but still super cool is that he rolls back out into the room using his wheelchair and he just rolls into color, basically, <laughs> yeah. like rolls back into the present color mm -hmm. palette. Super, super cool. Uh, so yeah, it's just a lot of creative choices that are being made in this section as far as camera and lighting goes. The old man explains this cat 
has been in this house for months, and one by one, it's killed off this old man's friends and manservants, where, you know, he the cat knocks one old woman down the steps, steals the breath of another older woman while she was sleeping and she had emphysema, and then caused a car wreck of the manservant. You know, just typical cat things, what have you. And after he finishes, Halston who is sitting, listening to the story, and it, the cat's just in his lap. He's just, like, petting the cat, like, uh-huh, okay. He points out, this could really just all be in your head, you realize. You don't know for a fact the cat did any of this. And the old man says, oh, no, that cat has been sent to punish me because, you see, I made all my money in pharmaceuticals, and this holds up a pill bottle. My biggest seller, tridormal phenobarbin, was tested on cats. We killed 5,000 cats in the process of testing this drug. And you think, holy shit, 5,000 cats? I don't know if this is this drug, tridormal phenobarbin is, phenobarbin is an actual drug. The way it's discussed in the movie, it really seems like it's just legalized heroin. Uh, the way that Halston talks about it, I think he says something like, ah, oh, you know, from what I hear, that's basically just smack. And yeah, it's like meant to be a painkiller for older people who are just suffering from old age. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, phenobarb does sound like it is referring to phenobarbital, okay. which would be, yes, a barbiturate okay. painkiller. <laughs> but 5,000 cats. How the fuck do you have to test 5,000 cats to make sure you're getting the dose right on what is essentially watered down heroin? Well, you don't. You do not have to go through 5,000 cats or something like this. I l went on to PETA.org and kind of wanted to look up some animal testing numbers. And depending on how toxic a drug can potentially be, like if we're talking about something that's meant to treat cancer or something that's meant to just relieve pain or something that could possibly affect your reproductive system, it's there's varying numbers like low level toxicity. You're talking about maybe a dozen or two dozen lab mice or rats and maybe some larger animals. And then on really toxic drugs that need to go through a lot of different trials, there could be as many as a few hundred rats and maybe even rabbits or larger primates. But even on keep in mind here, even on PETA's website, PETA has a strong bias to punch up these numbers because, you know, I don't know how much you know about PETA, but they're not fans of animal testing in labs. <laughs> and so they're going to give you the most extreme numbers that they can. Even the most extreme numbers on PETA's website do not even come close to 5,000 of something. Not only that, no one ever uses cats in lab tests. So don't worry. Cats never die to help make drugs happen. Dogs do, which does that. That kind of sucks. Well, any animal testing really kind of sucks. But yeah, this guy is just like, he's an evil, sadistic, barbiturate serial killer of cats. Maybe he just did it for fun. Maybe he didn't need to, but he did it. In the short know? story, it's even more ridiculous because he says that he killed 12,000 cats. <laughs> like, yeah. good God, Stephen King slash Mark Raines. What the fuck? 12,000? A small <sighs> city of cats died to make watered down heroin for old people. Yeah, and that is why they need this warrior of vengeance to come and haunt this dude, you know? He needs to have proper motivation. The second you hear that, you're like, okay, I'm on this cat's side. Fuck him up, little buddy. Like, do it. So, And that was also something that came up in the commentary that was interesting was this 
turn towards this idea that the monsters within this anthology really aren't necessarily the ones that are the evildoers or scary. Like, the mummy is just a tool of somebody else, right? He's not actually the one who's motivationally killing people. Mm-hmm. If he, the scroll wasn't read, like, he would have been fine just chilling in his sarcophagus. And this cat, he was provoked into this. Like, he's seeking vengeance for his cat brethren. And so this idea that monstrosity is usually in folklore a mirror for human horrors becomes very accurate, which is kind of fun. It also just seems like a very Stephen King thing to just have these killer animals that are supernaturally inclined to do amazingly fucked up shit. Side note, although these numbers might may or may not match up, the 80s was the height, the very peak of pharmaceutical testing on animals. It's really where we start getting the mass commercialization and advertising of drugs is in the 80s. So there's an interesting trend and switch in pharmaceutical companies. I mean, pharmaceuticals really took off in America in the 40s and 50s. So it's a very old industry, older than the 80s. But 80s is a turning point. And then you also have PETA becoming much more vocal in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So 80s really does situate this time as an increasing concern over the ethical treatment of animals in laboratory testing. So kind of like the mummification, Egyptomania context of the Arthur Conan Doyle story, it makes sense that this animal testing and the ethics thereof from big pharmaceutical companies that are starting to make a ton of money, I think... They are consistently the number one slot of like kind of just gross income in America since the 1980s. Mm. And so this growing conglomerate being this potential lurking horror for the writer of the 1980s in the way that the imperial gothic was on the minds of people in the 1880s, 1890s. So Dig different it. fears throughout the centuries. Yes, you know? yes. But what does this cat do? Well, Halston, having heard all this, just says, okay, look, this is ridiculous, but you're paying me $100,000. Whatever. I can kill this cat. The cat is, like, in his lap at the moment, just chill as can be. He's like, I guess I could just, like, snap its neck, like, right now if I wanted to. And the cat, you know, sensing when something bad is about to happen, springs up, slashes the Halston's hand, and runs the fuck off. So this cat is not going down that easily. It's, it's not going to be like that. And so the old man says, okay, I'm just going to leave you to it. And now Halston is just in the house alone trying to find the cat. And the cat, we get a little cat vision every now and then, some <laughs> like cat POV, which is it's interesting because it's shown as black and white with this purple fringing around the edges. And most likely, the science is still like a little undecided on this, but most likely cats can see some color. It's kind of like dogs. Dogs can register like yellow and yellows and blues, not so much greens and reds or that like colors in that spectrum or in that area of the spectrum. Cats most likely can see something similar, probably yellow, maybe blue, but monochromatic, eh, not so much. It, it wouldn't be that. But eh, that, Yeah, well, the whole color palette of this segment is pretty monochromatic yeah, across the board. Yeah, so. it, it makes sense. I like the effect, though. It's really cool, and the whoever's working the camera is really committing to the sparkle motion of the cat vision because it's down the ground, it's running around, it's really wide angle. It's pretty cool. At one point, the cat scratches Halston again 
And the assassin, he says this. Can't get hot. Can't let yourself get hot, ever. You make mistakes when you're hot. So hot. He says hot three times there. Now, fun fact, the guy playing Halston the Assassin, David Johansson, he also is a musician, and he's written some songs. And a big hit that he had three years before this film was this little number. In his music, he goes by Buster Point Dexter. Of course he does. And that was his big song in 1987 was Hot, Hot, Hot. And this line is like this line he has about like, you can't get hot. You make mistakes when you're hot. Gotta, you can't get hot. That's not a line from the book. So I'm dead convinced someone's like, yeah, let's do a. Buster Poindexter reference. Yeah, let's go inside. <laughs> Although I guess at the time of this movie, that song would have come out three years prior, so it was probably still popular. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. What a, what a great, weird little in reference. <laughs> but it works, because he's like, I got to keep my cool. Yeah. That was basically what he's saying, because he's a hitman. He's a professional. And this cat, you can't let it get the best of him. But this cat's totally going to get the best of him, because this guy is running around with a syringe trying to catch a cat to inject him. But the cat knows what syringes do because he saw what they did to his 12,000 or 4,000 brethren yeah. <laughs> with these like Depending injections, on pharmaceutical injections. So he's like, nah, I'm wise to that. I'm hip to that, man. Yeah. So instead, eventually this guy grabs this gigantic semi-automatic or whatever out of laser scope on the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's going to go hunting. He, he, at one point he's sitting in a chair watching television, waiting for the cat to show up. And what's interesting is that on the TV is a scene from a movie called Martin from 1976, which was a George Romero film. It's the film he made two years prior to Dawn of the dead. Uh, yes. It's like about a guy who another little in reference. Yeah, it's about like so this cheeky. young guy named Martin who thinks he's a vampire, and it's kind of a much like you know George Romero wanted to take a serious stance on zombies in Night of the Living Dead. He did that with vampires in Martin. Excellent. So yeah, it's like oh, okay, very nice, uh, like uh, very good. But the cat's sitting right from the TV, and I, I I think that there's we're meant to get the idea that this cat can affect things or has like a bad luck you know power because the assassin has his gun has a laser scope on the gun puts the laser scope right on the cat shoots and misses hits the tv instead he's like i had a dead beat on you what the hell is this so i don't know either the scope in this guy's gun was bad or this cat just has like bullet deflecting powers or something like right? that we just don't know it could go either way it's yeah. still a mystery as to whether these people are crazy, or if this cat really is a cat from hell, well, but we find out. <laughs> it's a cat from hell, because after this, ch he chases the cat around, shoots up most of the house trying to get it. The cat just says, okay, you know what? Enough of this shit. Jumps up on Halston's face, and in the most glorious, I just, I just love this so much, the effects they use to make this happen, the cat climbs into his mouth. And goes down his throat. Yeah, and you're like, this took a turn. This, I, I, I was I, not I, expecting I, to see this today. Yeah. Nor do you expect what comes next, which is a transpiring of the day. The, the evening turns into deep night, and then it turns into dawn. 
and this guy is still laying on the floor. Old man rolls into the room, and he witnesses a miracle. <laughs> he sees the cat come back out of Holston's mouth. Like he's, he sees the cat, like the stomach is bulging. He's like, what? What is that? Cat, the bulge of the stomach begins to move, and then the cat crawls back out of the guy's throat. And it's just licking its paws like, oh, I got some blood in my paws. Oh, yeah, he's covered yum, in yum, viscera. Yum. He's really wet. The old man ha- starts to have a heart attack or something, tries to go for his pills because the heroin pills help with that, I guess. Who knows? But he can't he can't do it because he's too scared of the cat. The cat's just staring at him and the old man dies. To be fair, if you just watch a cat exit out of the throat cavity covered in viscera of the hitman that you hired to kill this animal, that's the time to be scared of this cat. <laughs> this cat <laughs> yep. knows things, man. It does things. It is confirmed to have something a little bit extra about him. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, the second half of the segment is a little bit different in the short story. Not terribly much, but I think that the changes they made here are for, are the better for the sake of a film. After Holston accepts the job and says, yeah, I'll kill this cat, he then just puts the sleeping cat that's in his lap into a bag and then drives off because he drove himself there. And like in the movie, a taxi guy brings him. He's like, oh, yeah, this rich old guy paid me to bring you here. I'll stick around because he's a rich old guy. Uh, the Holston just drove himself. He drives off with the cat in a bag. He's like, oh, I guess I'll just bury this thing somewhere. But as he's driving, the cat claws its way out of the bag and then jumps him, causes Holston to crash. And in the midst of the crash, he's temporarily paralyzed. And now the cat is climbing and scratching at his face, getting on his face, like trying to suffocate him. And right before Holston can finally begin to move again and try and shoot the cat or stab it, the cat, yep, you guessed it, climbs down his throat again and kills him. And Holston is just, he's just dead in the car. And it, the car, is the, his body's not found until the next morning when a farmer pa- is passing by in his truck, sees the wreck, goes down there, and sees the cat, much like the old man does, jump out of the guy's throat. And the last lines of the book or something along the line, uh, something like, uh, the farmer saw the cat hop out of, of the strange man's mouth and then trot off back towards the house as if it had unfinished business. <laughs> I mean, that's cute, too. But yeah, it does seem like it comes more full circle to watch this old yeah. asshole die. Although, yeah, it does just culminate with this exodus from the throat cavity. It is a visual that you don't... I just didn't expect to see. <laughs> and then I was watching it, and I'm like, that's a thing that happened. And the second time I watched this movie, I watched it with a different group of people, one of which was... Robbie from the K-Bay podcast, yeah, who, is, who has been on our yeah. episodes before Robbie's for Swiss awesome. Army Man. Yeah. And the next day, <laughs> he ends up texting us and he's like, wait, did I just watch a cat climb out of some dude's throat yesterday? <laughs> I was like, yes, yes, you did, buddy. You did indeed. So it's just one of those things that takes a moment to process. And then you realize, I just saw that thing. I saw a thing. Oh. <sighs> 
I did see a thing. That's Cat from Hell. That's... Oh, side note yeah. from Cat from Hell. This mansion, this is one of the few mansions that is an actual set instead of being oh, okay. inside of the high school. Cool. And it is a mansion in Terrytown that for the longest time was owned by the Italian government and was where Mussolini stayed whenever he was stateside. What? Oh. Super random. Yeah, oh, man. But... That is, that's the end of that story. We go back to our wraparound story where Debbie Harry is getting impatient. She says, no, really, kid, I, I have to start slicing you up and get you in this oven. We cannot waste any more time. The kid says, no, wait, 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 you want to hear a love story, right? I'll, I'll read you a love story. Oh, love, uh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to a love story. She, She's a she, romantic at she heart. She wants to hear a, a love story. You know what? Who can blame her? And so the kid begins to read the final story of our anthology lover's vow which oddly i enjoyed the most and it seems like this is the one you enjoyed the least yeah i enjoyed the mummy one most and then the cat and then this one i thought they were both the mummy and the cat one are really good um i don't know i i guess maybe i just like wish that james remar was like a leading man in more things because he's really good in and this. that's true yeah. yeah but now you may have noticed dear listener that the first so- the first segment was inspired by a story by Arthur Conan Doyle and then the second is based on a story sort of by Stephen King then you would think well i guess this third one is an original work because it didn't say it was based on anything well you would be wrong and misinformed and we are here to correct both of those things because this third one is actually based on an old japanese story of the yukiana yeah it is. Yes. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. It is and it isn't. Like, it's kind of curious. It is so... sort of sort of based on this. The Yukiana, now I'm no expert. I, I'm far from an expert on Japanese folklore, but from what I what I have been able to unearth is that the Yukiana is a an ice spirit or a spirit of frost in the winter. And she's often described, it's always a she, and she's always described as this strange but beautiful woman wearing long white silk gowns long, very, very long, straight, dark hair, and her face is beautiful, but her eyes are very dark and spooky, and she often shows up to, you know, take people, like, kill people as they're struggling for their life in the midst of winter. And a famous story... Yeah, it's not the hypothermia that will get you. It's It's the Yukiona. It's it's damn bitches, man. Not not the cold. It's the bitches. There's nothing more cold than a woman. (laughs) Go figure! But... In particular, the story of Yukiana that inspired this was a story of the same name, Yukiana, from a 1904 book called Quaden, or Quaden Stories and Studies of Strange Things. Now, I didn't have a chance to read the original short story, but this story was adapted in 1965 into a Japanese horror anthology movie, what do you know, of the same name, Quaden. It was four stories, uh, the Yuki Ana story was the second one, and it's a kind of movie, London, I think you might really enjoy because it's very light on plot. Like, that segment of the movie has half the story as this third <laughs> segment, and it's twice as long, but it is meth- methodically slow to the point of almost being meditative. It kind of reminds me of no theater, like what little I've seen of no theater, because everything is moving very, very slowly. And the plot points are, again, are very similar. Except, you know, the Quaden story takes place, I believe, I want to say 1600s Japan, because one character says, I'm going to Edo, which was what Tokyo was called prior to, I believe, the 
1860s. But this section of the movie was written also by Michael McDowell, and he added, I would, I would say he added a lot, and obviously changed, make, adapted yeah, it from modern a little day. Bit. He added, yeah, added a, a bit uh, to the story. But, but folklore can operate that way, yeah. although slight correction or distinguishing sure, factor. Sure, sure. You, you do that, you. You go ahead and just rain on my parade. You go ahead and just so the tell me Quiden, I'm wrong. Yes, that's what I like to do. <laughs> so the Quiden story is not necessarily a short story per se. It came from a collected anthology of folk tales, and so it's not an original short story oh, by sure, sure, Hearn. Yeah. He was a amateur vernacular sort of folklorist anthropologist, I think from Wales initially, hmm. that had heard the story or had it told to him by a yes, local farmer, and he true. recorded it mm-hmm. in his collection. And that's so true. it is a popular folktale. However, the one that he recorded is the first record we have of this variation of the Yoko Anna. Mm-hmm. So, so that's an important kind of little distinguishing thing. And Yuki, I believe, means snow. So I think the Yuki Ona means like snow woman or snow lady. Mm-hmm. And then Quiden, of course, means ghost story. Yep. So it's just ghost stories or kind of ghost story stories and studies of strange things was the full kind of work. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing about it, because I, I have read this particular work, but it was a long time ago. It was a 1904 book that was published at the time. Mm-hmm. And the first half of it, is a collection of several Japanese ghost stories that he had collected or been told to him by Japanese storytellers or residents or locals. Yeah, I know. It kind of reminded me a little bit of like the the Brothers Grimm or the Kalevala, like where, which are like collections yes. of stories themselves, right? Yeah, because there was a very popular movement in the late 1800s, early 1900s of sort of lay folklorists that took it upon themselves to go and collect local tales and folk tales from certain geographic locations and regions and then publish them. So this is coming right at the heart of that, and he's just doing it for Japan. But... What's really curious about this is the first, like, three-fourths are these collection of Japanese ghost stories, and then it's followed up by this final section that's like a brief nonfiction study on insects. What? What? <laughs> it's like, wait, what? What are we... But, yeah, um, I think, like, in a way, if I remember correctly, he did kind of ruminate on some of the metaphors of certain insects, of, you know, butterflies in the soul or something, but it also just seems really out of place. But this kind of strange hodgepodge anthologizing was also kind of a popular remnant of the naturalism going into the Victorian era kind of thing. So it's a Victorian way of of writing, I suppose. But it is very bizarre because you've got like this collection of Japanese ghost stories and then a little section on insects. (laughs) You wonder, like, was he working on another book and he just accidentally included those pages when he sent off a stack to the publisher? He's like, here's some ghost stories I collected. Oh, by the way, I have some thoughts on books. The editor just says, uh, strange move, but hey, who are we to tell this guy how to write? Whatever, whatever. Include the bug chapter two at the very end, I guess. But yes. So yeah, it is a more popularized folktale than a specific short story. So important for me as the, your resident anthropologist to make that distinction. (laughs) Yes. That's her version of her ears burning. Like, what? what? No, I feel like someone's saying something a little bit wrong about a folk story. I can't handle it. Uh. (laughs) Well, actually, Benjamin. (laughs) (laughs) Must well actually been. uh. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I will, I'll, I'll kind of like point out like the, the similarities and like where, where Michael McDowell was drawing from as we go along with this story, which really, I mean, annotation wise, we don't have too much to say about this last section, uh, which, you know, was, yeah. which is great because we can kind of uh, breeze through it a little bit here. So we're in New York City, as we often are. And we meet our buddy James Remar, who most people yeah. like say, like, Dexter's dad or uh, Samantha's boyfriend from Sex and the City. And I'm like, no, nah, that guy from the Warriors. That's the good stuff. Fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's got a great face. He's oh, a great fantastic face. face on this guy. So true. And he's a struggling artist trying to make his art. And it's just it's not going well for him. He, he can't pay rent on his gigantic New York apartments. You know, it's it's tough that living that life. Goes to see his agent at a bar. Agent says, yeah, man, look, no one's, our galleries are not selling your shit. Uh, I can't be your agent. I can't live off a of 10% of nothing, so I've got to drop you. They get really bitchy about agents in the script, too, because he's like, you're a terrible, soul-sucking, lifeless monster. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm an agent, so <laughs> that's what I signed up for. And you're like, somebody has some feelings about agents. Okay. Yeah, so Carrying on. James Remore, he has, he's having a bad night. He gets drunk. And as he's heading out with this bartender buddy and he's like, yeah, let's, let's get out of here. They stop in an alley, you know, one of the five alleys in New York city. Because <laughs> That's just one thing I always love about movies with alleys in New York city. I'm like, okay, there's like five places this could be. Cause New York doesn't really have alleys. Uh, they have like, because of the grid system, they don't, that doesn't happen. That's that's why there's always so much trash around New York. It's because there's no alleys to put them in. Dark. What do you do? Yeah. Dank spaces. But something is in this alley. Something that is stalking the two of them. And his. Is it a woman made of snow? Uh, it is not a woman made of snow. Exactly. Uh, nor are no, these no, two no, guys <laughs> woodcutters heading home. Because that's what happened in the short story. It's two woodchoppers who are trying to get through the you know, the wilderness, get back to their village, and they're stuck because there's a giant snowstorm, so they have to stay in a little hut for the night. And the old guy doesn't make it through the night because that snow woman shows up and sucks the life out of him. Guess what? It's not a snow woman that shows up here. It's a goddamn gargoyle who shows up. And guess what happens to the bartender? You want to guess what happens? You know what happens to him? He gets his head torn from his body, I believe. I believe the word is... Oh my god, yeah. I forgot about that. How did I forget about that? It's back. Never never gonna let that one die. That's a good sound effect. Decapitation! What is that from? It's... <laughs> I don't think... Yeah, I never explained this. Okay, so this... this Decapitation! That is uh, Jack Black's voice in a cutscene from a video game from 2009, Brutal Legend. And it's Whoa. it's basically like it's a metal rock-themed video game. I mean, it's it's a video game that Jack Black would be in. It makes... When you see it, you're like, okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Bringing you the deep dives here on Cinema <laughs> of Cruelty. It's like Brutal, like the U in Brutal has an umlaut on it. So I was like, okay. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. All right. Decapitation indeed. So this, this motherfucker gets decapitated. <laughs> As you do, it does happen that way. And the gargoyle, which this gargoyle puppet is fascinating because it's big, it's life-size. We never really quite get a full shot of it. Uh, the only thing I think is a shortcoming on it is like that the mouth doesn't, it moves kind of weird. It's like 
It's just like an open, closed mechanism on the mouth. The lips curl a little bit. It's still slimy and gross. It's great 80s. It's beautiful work. Yeah, it's great 80s practical effects. And the gargoyle corners James Remar and says, okay, I could kill you right now, but I'll let you live under one condition. Okay, what would that be? You can never tell anyone that you saw me. You can never reveal what happened tonight. If you ever do reveal what happened, I'm going to kill you. Okay, cool. Square deal. To seal the deal, the gargoyle jokes is like, cross your heart and rips his chest with its town like, oh, shit, gargoyle, you didn't have to do that. That's a, that's a mean move. And so James Remar, like, thankful to be alive but still freaking the fuck out, runs off, runs down the street, and... As you do when you're scared, he just grabs a random woman who's walking by. A random woman who happens to be played by Ray Dong Chan. Ray Don Chong. Ray Don Chong. Ray. What? Ray. He grabs Ray, daughter of Tommy Chong. She's awesome. Oh, that's Tommy Chong's daughter? Yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. I know. Like, a lot, I think a lot of people remember her from the, the Schwarzenegger movie, Commando. She was in that movie. I just remember her from The Quest for Fire, which played a lot when I was a kid on cable. And it's a movie about cavemen, and she plays a cave woman who is just, she's naked throughout the entire thing. So as a kid, I'm like, wow, she's a really good actor. Yeah. <laughs> she's That's all you can see. She, she's great in this movie, man. Look at the, such, a, such a finely tuned acting instrument that she has going on there. But she's understandably a little freaked out. Like, why are you grabbing me? What the hell is going on here? And James Remar says, like, oh, it's dangerous out here. You, you can't be out here. Well, I'm trying to get a cab. You can't get a cab right now. Come into my apartment so you can call for a cab. Like this escalated in a weird way, but all right. But it works for it, him. This yeah. is a strange like pickup line. Like, do not get off the streets. Come up to my apartment and call a cab. I'm like, hmm, all right. You know, seventy percent of the time it works. One hundred percent of the time, I suppose. What do you do? Well, she heads up to his apartment, and, I mean, this, this, the goddamn sparks are flying here, you know? Like, immediately, she is into this guy. She's like, you know what? I don't think I want to call a cab. I think I would like to uh, stick around here. So, in the story, the Yuki Ana story, like I said, the snow spirit, she shows up, kills an old guy, and the younger man sees her, and she says, yeah, look, I'll let you live, if you, but you can never tell anyone that you saw me. Okay, cool. And he gets back to his village. About a year later, so much longer time span than the, what we have here, about a year later, he comes across this beautiful woman who is walking through his village. She says, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to Edo. I, I'm an orphan. I, I think I have family in Edo. And he says, well, God, well, if you're on your way there, why don't you stop in, uh, with me and my mother very briefly so you can rest and we'll give you some food. And she says, okay, great. And... Same thing. She, they just immediately start clicking, and she decides, you know what? I don't think I'm going to go to Edo. I think I might just stick around here. And he's like, well, that's that's really good. So it's a little less suspicious than meeting the love of your life right after the encounter with the gargoyle. Because, spoiler alert, this woman is not what she seems. Yeah, she also doesn't know how to clean a wound because <laughs> this... Talon scrape is still on his chest and he takes off his shirt and he's dabbing at it with rubbing alcohol and she takes the little cotton ball from him and she just 
stabs slightly at different patches of the wound. I'm like, you just gotta pour that shit all over his chest. Just do it, girl. But no, they just dab at a couple of spots, and then they're like, yeah, that's probably good. It's not gonna get infected. We don't need to stitch this up. Let's bang. Uh-huh. So they they get down in his loft apartment, his warehouse loft apartment, that... It's not necessarily super obvious necessarily unless you're looking for it, but this segment is very gray pastelled. It's very Mm. heathered in its tone. It has a lot more orchestral romantic music, and there are just fog machines everywhere, (laughs) like smoke and fog, especially we can see it on the street very visibly because there are puffs of smoke that come up around the ambulances and come up around the alleyways. But a cool thing that they seem to be doing in this warehouse is that they have filled it with that fog machine smoke so that everything just has that slightly hazy particle smoke filled quality that is just diffusing all of this soft light all over the place. So if you're like, how do they make this warehouse look all weirdly heathered and mystical? I'm like, oh, I have seen this before. They <laughs> pump that shit full of smoke. And this is another set that is built inside the high school. <laughs> of course. So many goddamn high school sets. It's it's how you do it. It's true. Well, yeah, these two, James Remar and Radon uh, RDC, they uh, it, it goes good. They hook up, and she says, "Hey, you know, uh, I have a friend uh, of a friend who runs this art gallery. Uh, it's this person's name." He's like, "Oh, that's a super famous art gallery." Oh, well, we see about getting some of your art into that art gallery. See if that works out. Guess what? It works out. This guy's life is on the upswing. Cut two. Ten years later, and life is still good for this guy. He is now married to this beautiful woman he met in a hard time of his life. Things are going great. He's a successful artist, and they have some kids now. Wonderful, serene life. It's just, goddamn, it's it's so, so fucking cool. It's just, he, he's having a good time, but something really eats away at him. He, he hates the fact that he's never been 100% honest with her. And... Maybe I think this is why I like this segment the most. I think it's a combination of just James Remar is really bringing it in this. Again, like I said, James Remar really should have had more leading roles. Uh, He has been a supporting player for so much of his career. And Guy is a great actor. And I think he's doing great here. Great work here. And he reveals the story about the gargoyle to his wife. He says, look, you have given me everything. And something that I have not given you is the truth. And what really happened the night that we met was a goddamn gargoyle attacked my buddy and me and only would let me live if I didn't tell anyone about it. And I think the reason I like this is that I've mentioned this in the past. I'm polyamorous. And in polyamory, we always say the three most important things in polyamory are communication, communication, communication. So it's a very big part of my life to always be open and honest with those in my life. And when you're not, Goddamn, that guilt can eat away at you. So I think I just really appreciate the notion of, you know, guilt is eating at this guy for not being 100% true and honest with the woman that he loves. Uh, that's like, that's why it works for me. I get why it does, doesn't work for you because you don't feel guilt about anything. No, I don't ever. feel anything ever. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. That's My whole life is a lie. <laughs> no, I think what doesn't work for me as much is just that... Not that I don't like ambiguity in metaphors and messages, but there's a lack of a 
core message here, because what's going to happen is he reveals the secret to her, and she begins to transform back into the gargoyle, saying, you promised you'd never tell, and then his kids also turn into gargoyles, and it's just this whole gargoyle transformation, which is a cool transformation, I'll give it that, but she's all upset with him, because he broke his promise, and he didn't lie to her really right and so it's like it's a weird convoluted message here because she's also gonna have to kill him right he's Mm -hmm. like wait change back she's like no i can't you have set our fate because you know you promised you wouldn't do it you broke your vow and so now i'm gonna have to kill you that's just how that works and i'm like is it though is it how it works because if we're gonna go with that like guilt of he hasn't been telling her things she hasn't been telling him a much bigger secret, which is that she's the gargoyle that killed his best friend via decapitation all those years ago. Decapitation! And so that she's apparently a stone-cold serial-killing gargoyle that just wants to find love, you know? And I respect that. Mm-hmm. That, like, you know, she does her. She has her thing. But it's a little hypocritical to be like, okay... Well, not even, like, you can't lie to me, because she wants him to lie. She she wants to live together with him in this lie, Mm -hmm. and that he broke the vow, and that's supposed to be... Because you could also be like, hey, man, you know that this thing might kill you if you tell me, and you care more about revealing this to me than this thing possibly coming back and killing you. That's real sweet. You know, that's a possible way that she could have taken it, but no. It's not that it's an ambiguous in its message between options, which I'm always fine with ambiguity in that way. It's just that, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to take from the story at all Mm. because it's, like, (laughs) revealing yourself of guilt from communicating apparently is not the answer. And (laughs) keeping secrets and living in a lie apparently is the answer, which, fine, like, if you want to live in delusion, like, that's, that's cool, but... It doesn't really seem to push hard enough on that either. So it's hard for me to be able to dissect what the horror of the story is other than, like, women are potentially scary, deceiving assholes that might actually be monsters that will kill you if you try to disrupt the family vows that you have set up. And that's just not a message I care about. (laughs) So, yeah. Mm. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if you empathized with the protagonist, then I could see where you'd be a bit more connected to the story. But I was just like, no, this I think it was also that it just jumped around so quickly in time that I didn't have time to care about their love story. So that when it was revealed as broken, Mm -hmm. it was like, well, I've only been with you for like two seconds. So I don't really care (laughs) about your journey. I think maybe that's where the the Japanese short uh, the short the. Japanese film might do better because like I said it's a much it's much longer. It's still part of an anthology film, but it's an anthology film that is 3 hours long, mind you. And I think that section of it is I think 45 maybe even 50 minutes and it's still like half the story that's in this version of it. Though the ending of this American version is where the plot points differ a little bit. In the Japanese version after the woodcutter and this mysterious woman have been living together uh, for 10 years. They have some kids and the other women in the village are like, wow, you know, that that woodcutter's wife, she is really the best. It's weird that she never ages, though. Like, she looks exactly the same as she did 10 years ago. That's strange. Huh. And then one night, while the wife and her husband are just sitting, uh, you know, sitting at home, the kids are put down to sleep and the husband just wa- looks at his wife. And the lights change from, like, orangish 
candlelight to very blue light. And the husband thinks, whoa, she looks kind of like the Yukiana I saw 10 years ago. And his wife sees him staring. She says, what are you staring at? He says, you know, uh, it's just kind of weird. I noticed something. Uh, funny story. Never told you about this. 10 years ago, I saw Yukiana. <laughs> really? Just kind of crazy you know she killed she was the, gonna kill me and then she, she did yeah she killed this old this guy and then, then she was gonna kill me and you know she's like oh, i'm not gonna kill you if you never tell anyone and so i never told anyone except for you and you look a lot like her that's weird and <laughs> then it's basically the same thing she says okay god damn it man you said you would never tell anyone she turns like into the the spirit again white white outfit scary black hair uh, all the lights in the room are now blue and everything's gone cold. Uh, but the difference between Japanese version and American version is she says, okay, I really want to kill you right now, but we have two kids together and I really love those kids. So uh, I would, I'm going to not kill you because you need to take care of them, but I'm getting the fuck out of here because you done fucked up and you broke the promise, man. So I'm out. Peace. And so she just disappears. And this man is now like left with no wife. His kids are still around, but his kids are like, dad, what happened to mom? Where'd mom go? And he's like, ah, uh, um, uh, and he can't even tell them because he doesn't know how to explain what happened. Yeah. So I guess there's something interesting in this idea that you can never fully know another person and your lover, what have you. Mm -hmm. And something haunting about, Love ripped apart abruptly by a lie or deception or a broken vow. I think maybe why it's my least favorite section in general is just because it has a slightly different tone than the others, where the Debbie Harry section and the mummy and the cat from hell are all super zany and super pulpy. Yeah. And they, everybody's having just a great time and they're finding this very curious tone. Yeah. And there are moments of that in the lover's vow, especially with the effects. But mm -hmm. the performances it's, in the story of the vow really, yeah. it's, yeah, it's a little bit more somber. It doesn't mm -hmm. have just the comedic pulp fiction EC Comics vibe of the rest of yeah. Um, I mean, it, and the sources. Oh, I forgot about the the sense. line that completely threw me off. Like even more than the chrysanthemums line is when the mom, the the, the parent, mom and dad, like they're celebrating ten years together, and they're with their kids, and the kids are saying, "What are you guys doing tonight? Oh, we're gonna go out. We're celebrating ten. It's been ten years since we met." And the daughter who can't physically be older than nine years and three months old says, Oh, you mean that night that daddy jumped you in the streets and he, you thought he was going to rape you like Jesus Christ, kid. Also Jesus Christ, mom, you told your kid that that's what you thought was going to happen. Well, cause there's no secrets in their family except for all of the secrets in their family. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that did kind of come out. like, Whoa, there's a, there's a, situation for a kid to know about, but I guess it's important to talk to your kids early about uh, domestic violence and sexual assault. Why I, not? I suppose so, but, but yes. Yeah, it was a downer of a moment. It's like, okay, so this is a far cry from the cat that's just mass exiting <laughs> from somebody's and killer mummies. consumed yeah. innards. And it, it ends on such a somber note, too, because, yeah, after she transforms into the gargoyle and the kids horrifically like we don't see the transformation but yeah the kids are gargoyles now too and James Remar is like what happened what's going on you broke your vow time to die bites his neck 
and flies off. And she and the children all turn into stone on top of a building. Yeah, it's kind of a downer. Yeah, goddamn. Not a happy ending, which is the critique, getting back to the wraparound story, that Debbie Harry has. She's like, yeah, it's not a happy ending, but none of them really have happy endings. But the kid says, oh, no, I, I know of one that has a happy ending. It's a story about a kid who had to go door to door. He has to take over his brother's paper route for the day. He's like, I have a story about a kid whose older brother has a paper route that he didn't do for the day. And so I had to do it instead. And then I knocked on this woman's door and she let or she let the kid in and tried to get him fat by making him eat cookies all day. And I'm like, well, that's not exactly how it works. Like the one day it's going to take some time. I, to I was going to say like, that's my critique for the Debbie Harry witch here or whatever, if she's a witch or just woman who eats children. One, if you're going to eat a kid and you, why'd you pick him? Matthew Lawrence, like, was he just the only one available? Cause this kid's a scrawny little kid. There's gotta be a chubby kid around, but also yeah, making him eat cookies all day isn't really going to do the job of fattening him up. He's just going to have some cookies in his digestive system. But yeah, the although fats... that might be his perception, right? Yeah. Maybe she just wanted to keep him on a sugar high. Oh, could be that to too. To keep him yeah. jazzed up but weak. And I don't know, to keep him quiet with his little bag of cookies. Because, yeah, maybe there are better kids. Maybe they're more quiet kids. Maybe they're more compliant kids. But this one came to her door. Yeah, you know? that's so true. So this is like the DoorDash, <laughs> Uber Eats <laughs> delivery system of the 90s. Like, it was delivered by his own volition. And she's like, come mm. on in. I, I don't know what she was planning on doing to procure a child. Had she Like, I don't know if she was decided to throw an impromptu dinner party because she had the kid or if she was going to have to go find a different kid because uh -huh. the dinner party was already planned. Like <laughs> It seems the fact that everybody, like an eight-party dinner party, is just ready at the drop of a hat to get together because she happened to find a kid like that's I either that, that... Or they're all dedicated you know like maybe that's the moment where you just drop all your plans because children is on the menu i get the vibe that if debbie harry in real life wanted to say you know what i feel like having eight people over for dinner she could make eight people come to her house you know without planning yeah, but of the specific subset variety of the friend group that likes to oh, cannibalize to okay, the yeah. youth and pair it with champagne. Like, that's the Venn diagram overlap. <laughs> Available at a moment's notice, cannibals pairs meat with champagne. <laughs> like that's, That really cuts down your Venn diagram. I, I think the, the child cannibals are the kind who just realize that the opportunity to eat the kid doesn't come along very often. So, you know, if the word gets out, you just say, oh, fuck, look, we have to cancel uh, the plans. Uh, fuck the kid's recital. We, uh, we gotta go eat this kid. Debbie's there got a kid. child on the table. Yeah. yeah. That's just what you have to do. But the child, however, is not to be eaten because he has the power of marbles on his side because he, he happens to have some marbles in his pocket. And metafictive narrative storytelling because yeah. he's narrating what he's about to do. He's like, so kid showed up for his paper route covering for his older brother. Mm -hmm. And then this crazy woman locked him in a pantry with bars on it. But she didn't know that he had marbles in his pocket. And when he threw the marbles, she didn't see where they went. And she slipped. And she's doing this in real time yeah. as she's commenting on his story. And so he's telling her he's throwing the marbles. Like, that shouldn't be a surprise. She, really she could look down. Looked, but yeah. no, she's locked inside his narration powers oh. of the moment. Because mm -hmm. he controls this narrative now. And 
She slips, she falls on this gurney that she had laid out ready for him and impales herself and it goes rolling, crashes her into this very deep oven, which must be a custom job. But I guess if you cook children frequently, you're probably going to install that custom oven. So that's fine. And uh, she's screaming. She goes in there. He reaches the keys and unlocks himself and he takes his sweet ass time once he becomes unlocked because she's in the oven so it's fine it's chill he's like ah she's not getting out of there even though it's a conventional oven door and she could just push it open (laughs) she's not gonna do that instead he's gonna pick up another bag of cookies because he hasn't eaten enough goddamn cookies like kid why do you want to have another cookie i feel like cookies are now going to be a very triggering thing for this kid for the rest of his life like, no, cookies, the thing I had to eat that day, I was, like, trapped in a in a cell and had was thought I was going to be killed. No, nothing keeps him from his knockoff Chips Ahoy. Once, uh, what's his damn cookies? Looks right at the camera, breaking, he's the only character who breaks the fourth wall in the whole movie and just says, don't you just love a happy ending? Like, well, yeah. I, I would if this were a happy ending, but... Debbie Harry's dead. Yeah. Debbie Harry's gone, so that happy ending ship has sailed because she's the best thing about this movie. I wanted to watch her eat you. I think what's going on here is that because the kid was reading from the Tales from the Dark Side book, he gained the power of the storyteller, and just whatever oh. he says becomes the reality, you see, because he was... Yeah, it's like never-ending story. He realizes that oh. this was his story the whole time. Yeah. And that he can control the world's by reading. Yeah. Yeah. And that so. is Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. The movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it uh, is a movie. It ends. It's like it's the end is so abrupt too. He just says, Don't you just love a happy ending? Chomp on a cookie. <laughs> yeah. That's all it needed. I mean, we didn't need more. It's just—it's a quick and dirty in and out. Here's some zany stories. Like it is what it is. We have said what we need to say. Cut to credits. Yeah. Is this movie world-altering, life-changing? No. Oh. But is it a fun watch for like an Fuck, hour and thirty yes, minutes? Yes, it Absolutely. is. I have spent ninety minutes of my life in far worse ways. Yeah, and I think it's really just the people who are involved. It's the tone that they have tapped into. I can see why it's a little bit of a cult classic. I think I would have loved this movie as a kid. So For sure, I can see where yeah. people who watched it as a kid. I, I'm trying to think if I ever saw any of this movie as a kid. Because this strikes me as the type of movie that would have been on you know HBO, Showtime, Cinemax, something like that. on Like on rotation a lot back in the day and you would think and yet i never saw it that way like Mm. it just was somehow slipped past my radar what a shame Eh. oh well so top five top five yes by got a top five let's get down to it so my honorable mention is just going out to mark rains who i mentioned was the co-author of the cat from hell despite the fact that only stephen king is the one credited here so you know just a shout out to the unnamed co-author of one of our stories. I, I think he deserves a shout out. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. Good for him for contributing. He did something. And it was important because it was a cat exiting from somebody's throat cavity. So, respect. Your honorable mention. My honorable mention goes out to whatever wonderful set designer picked that fridge. That wonderful... Wonderful fridge. 
Man, was that fridge truly horrifying and great at the same time. And it's just really cool that this whole thing, more or less, was built inside of a high school and or the stateside vacation government home of Mussolini. Strange combo. Yeah. All right. My number five is the music in this. And the music to me is very impressive because it was done by so many different people and yet it all feels so coherent. You had Donald Rubenstein doing the wraparound story score. Uh, Pat Regan and Jim Manzi were scoring Lot 249. Chaz Jankel was scoring Cat from Hell. And John Harrison was working music for the final segment, Lover's Vow. They're all very unique styles to their segments, and yet it all meshes together, and that's a hell of an accomplishment for an anthology film. So, well done. Tell me about your number five. My actual number five goes out to the effects team, the special effects on this. The effects are really great. They're tangible. They're gooey. They're all of the really beautiful practical effects stuff that I love to see. They fit into this seamlessly and in a way that I think I almost took advantage of them a little bit, which is why they are lower on my list, because they just seem so effortless, which, great. Who is your number four? My number four is the cast, particularly Christian Slater and James Remar for very different reasons. Christian Slater, I just love the fact that he is acting crazy in his segment at the right times. Just going full JT mode at the very end there, ready to burn Steve Buscemi and cut up a mummy. Uh, you know what? That's what he does well, and by God, it's amazing, and I'm glad he does it. Yeah. James Remar, I'm just, I'm loving him in this movie. Like I said, I wish he did more things like, he got to do more things like this. He is playing it very somber and just adding a lot of emotional gravitas to his role, and... Really, I think just because the character story, as you mentioned, is so very short that might it might not work as well as it could for the tone that he's going for in his performance. And it's a shame, but I'm glad that he tried it. And I think it's really great. And yeah, just loved seeing him. You're number four. My number four is Matthew Lawrence, actually. I... I know how you feel about kid actors, and it is not favorable, but I enjoy a really fun kid actor, and I think he did a great job. I believed him, you know? I believed that he was a poor, imprisoned paper boy filling in for his older paper boy brother that got locked up by a very blasé witch and was kind of indifferent to his own situation and could stop in the middle of his mortal peril to do surprisingly good mental math long division in his head for a 10-year-old. And uh, yeah, I found his presence really endearing. I see why he had a child career. Paper boys, man. You know, you gotta represent. It's a lost art. It's a lost and dying art. My number three are the people who made all of those in-camera transitions happen in The Cat from Hell. Uh, because they are amazing, they're beautiful, and these kinds of, of scrim-based effects, they need to be seen in more movies. So, movie people, just make more of these. They're amazing. Yeah, you, you're, you, you London. What, what is your number three? Go ahead. 
My number three pretty much just goes out to the whole horror squad. I'm just going to call them the horror squad. Okay. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, it's really hard to separate any of the departments in this particular film just because we have people like Harrison and Romero and King and McDowell and Rubenstein and they are coming in and they are wearing a lot of hats. They're helping on everything and then of course there are other people involved than just the names there but everyone kind of seemed to cross departmentalize a little bit so the whole crew the production crew is great the writing staff is great they're just having a lot of fun and it's just crazy to me it'll be forever baffling to me that there are so many names from the later 20th century that were involved in this and i just never heard of it well it's crazy you mentioned that my number two is writer Michael McDowell, who I think did a really interesting job of updating two very old stories because he wrote the first segment, Lot 249, and then also wrote the final segment, Lover's Vow. And they're both based on very old stories. If One, if like, could be much older than we think it is. The Yukiana story probably goes way further back than just the publication of that uh, book, like as you mentioned. So he's updating two very old stories and doing two very different tones that I think are appropriate for both of them. Again, the the last one works for me, but that's uh, that's just how I am, okay? That's how I do. It is what it is. Your number two. My number two goes out to Pulp Fiction and EC Comics. So not the Tarantino movie Pulp Fiction, but actual Pulp Fiction that Tarantino named his movie after. The genre that became so popular in the first half of the 20th century into the center of it. And for EC comics like The Vault and Tales from the Crypt, really inspiring this whole zany, wacky tone that came afterwards. That horror could be a a little bit silly, and it could be gross, and it could still maybe tap into something, and it could just be fun. You know, horror can be fun, and that is what pulp fiction teaches us. This film's just fun, man. It's just fun. All right. Well, let's get to it. My number one, like I said at the very top, the best thing about this movie, then my number one is all the practical effects that we see. From that nasty, dirty mummy to the cat that jumps down people's throats to the gloriously slimy gargoyle. I love all of this stuff. It's the kind of special effects that we just don't see enough of anymore. And I wish we saw it more. It needs to happen more. Thank you, practical effects people. From Tales from the Dark Side, the movie is beautiful. Now, tell me your underwhelming number one. Yeah, I said it. Uh, my number one I thought was clear, but apparently not. And that is motherfucking Debbie Harry. She needs to be this entire film. I want this wraparound story as a movie. Which I know is a weird thing to say because that is kind of what Tales from the Dark Side is. It is their story as a movie, but... We cut away from them too much. I, I want the full life tale, the biography of Debbie Harry, the casual cannibal who kidnaps paper boys and prepares them for supper. I want to watch her cook her way through that entire process, like television cooking show style. I want to see it. I want to see the dinner party. I want to know what guests she invited over. I want to watch them all convene and eat a kid. Like, that is how much Debbie Harry endeared me to 
her role and herself in this movie. She was just delightful. That was not as underwhelming as I thought it was going to be. Good job. Well, folks, as always, we always want to hear from our awesome listeners. So leave a comment on the Instagram post that we make. Get us on Twitter. And if the, you know, 240 character limit is just not enough for you, go over to the Cinema of Cruelty subreddit and write as long a critique as Reddit will allow you. And from what I understand, you can really, really write something there. And since this is October, we hope that you will join us in two weeks when we cover our oldest movie yet about a certain reanimated monster whose name is hotly debated to this day. Okay, so if we're done with this shameless self-promotion, as it were, we'll go ahead and safe word out here by saying, yeah, go check out Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, or perhaps the TV show. I haven't really watched much of the TV show myself, but I think I might check some of it out. But in the meantime, we're actually, we're going to go old school here. We're going to preserve the classics, and we're going to let the low-key iconic outro of the OG TV series safe word us out here as we say because after all the dark side is always there waiting for us to enter the dark side is always there waiting for us to enter waiting to enter us until next time Try to enjoy the daylight. Really? All about that paper boy. Got a team of server paper. Cali to the cater. Stack it. Paper boy. Paper boy. All about that paper boy. Yeah. Keep a team. Uh. Paper boy, always block that paper boy. If you ain't on your grind, then you flexing, use a hater boy. Paper boy, paper boy, always getting paper boy. If you ain't making money, then you ain't a money maker boy. Paper clip, paper clip, yeah, I need a paper clip. I'm stacking up this paper, man, and I can make that paper flip. That paper flip, paper flip, watch me make this paper flip. And head to Magic City, and I bet that paper make a strip. Paper man, paper man, catch me in the paper man. Like Wall Street Journal, yeah, cause I be getting paper, man, that paper boy, paper boy, always block that paper boy, if you ain't on your grind, then you flexing, use a hater boy, paper boy, paper boy, always getting paper boy, if you ain't making money, then you ain't a money maker boy, paper boy, paper boy, all about that paper boy, I keep a team, uh, yeah, paper boy, paper boy, always block that paper boy, if you ain't on your grind, then you flexing, you a hater boy, paper boy, paper boy, always getting paper boy. If you ain't making money, then you ain't a money maker boy. Paper boy, paper boy, all about that I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!